Okay, Andrew. Well, uh, excellent. Uh, this is Andrew this is Crystal, Crystal, and I'm here today with, with uh, Bob Dahl, Mary McLuhan, David Greenberg, Scott Taylor. In fact, uh, we've got all the uh, heavyweights in the McLuhan world all in one place, and uh, this is going to be a really exciting conversation. So um, I'll step back. Uh, thanks to everybody being here, and um, let's see if we can add a, a, a significant chapter to uh, the history we know and also um, learn something about our present. Sounds good to me. Okay, so is there an echo right now? No, I think you got rid of it. Okay, good. I have to position myself in relation to the recording here. Okay, um, we have two guests. Really honored to have David Greenberg, the person I know is uh, involved in the last secret project with Marshall McLuhan in the late 70s, and we have a good friend of David Greenberg's, Marshall's daughter. David Greenberg was love's father. There you have it. That's the voice, voice of Mary McLuhan, uh, twin sister. David Greenberg. (laughs) I love him too. Okay, people are bouncing in. I'm going to go to another part to create a less echo, but they're out mowing the lawn. So, okay, I want to say Mary McLuhan, who is actually in the 80s, created the highest profile of McLuhan's name in a public that was forgetting McLuhan in the 70s and definitely in the 80s. Mary kept alive with her project with uh, uh, teaching awards all over North America and on her board were Walter Cronkite, Vince Cerf, Henry Kissinger, Tom Wolfe, anybody else? Mary? Uh, yes, um, U.S. Secretary of Education, Shirley Huff-Sedler, and Richard Riley, Secretary of Education under Reagan. Right, so the, McLuhan, the name McLuhan until 1989 in the middle 80s, uh, was not circulating anymore, other than what Mary was doing. I was appointed to the California State Board of Education. Under Jerry Brown in the late 70s. Um, I the Marshall McLuhan Distinguished Teacher Awards, which was very successful, and today we're taking it out globally to address digital and social media. Right, and where are you based, Mary? Um, We're based, well, we have... Three offices, one in Oregon, one in L- uh, San Francisco, and one in L.A. Okay. Do you operate out of New York at all on the East Coast? Uh, well, there might be an office soon in Washington, D.C., because one of our board members has um, maybe donating an office there. Right. Okay. So, Mary, um, you cannot stay with us uh, too long, so let's go do a bit of history how did you, do you remember meeting David? Who, I should say, David is now known for uh, the theme of sustainable ruralism, and he lectures a lot in China, which is the present ground become figure. Uh, he lectures a lot on eco-cities. He, I know him as, other than personally meeting him, he did the book Tree Houses of Hawaii, and I have some of his uh, pamphlets and documentation he did with Marshall McLuhan in the 70s when he worked out of the Los Angeles County Museum. So, Mary, what do you recall? How did you meet David? I met David at um, this incredible place in Venice, California, called Environmental Communications. And he was such incredible work. I got so excited. 
and he was so nice, he hired me. <laughs> I'm not too sure what I did, but anyway. Hey, David, are you there? I'm there, and I'm, I'm, I, I, you're remembering stuff that I didn't even remember. I'm listening carefully. Oh. oh. Um, David and I became friends, and then when Dad decided to come and visit me in Newport Beach, um, I invited David because I wanted David so much to meet Dad because I thought they would just get along so famously. Well, they did. Dad adored David. I mean, you know, they were inseparable. Because David is a genius, you know, when it comes to environmental. And he's a great architect. And that fits within, you know, some of the philosophy of Dad. I mean, Dad could talk about just about anything. <laughs> David knew everything. <laughs> One thing, I'll be more Mary, specific when it's my turn. <laughs> yeah, David, I'm reminded you told me you studied under Paolo Soleri, S-O-L-E-R-I, who was a very uh, involved architect in the late 60s, early 70s. And you had your vision there, didn't you, with him and his course? Yeah. Uh, well, I first uh, actually met Paolo Soleri in like 1960 uh, when he first moved um, to Arizona from Italy uh, to become uh, a visionary futurist uh, with cities. And his uh, first designs were these great arcologies, uh, which were cities of the future, ecological cities of the future, and still yet to be built, but should be. I've been trying in China to get them to build them. And I give lectures still on Paolo Solari, who's still alive and still has great ideas and doing great uh, exhibitions around the world, including China, on his, because he really has the this, this secret and the, and the sense and the understanding of what cities should be like. And I patterned my life after 1960 after his approach to the ecological city and became an urban designer because of that. David, could you speak it just a little louder? Just yeah, so I recall. I actually uh, became um, uh, an urban designer and went to graduate school uh, for urban design after architecture because of his influence uh, in the world of urban design. And, and he's still influencing the world. The only trouble is that he was 100 years ahead of everybody. So in maybe 20, 30 years, they're going to build one of the cities. Right. Now, what was it in the mid-70s that allowed you to do the first mixed-media installation or whatever at the Los Angeles County Museum? Yeah, well, um, actually, um, I founded, uh, when I graduated uh, a college uh, with an architecture degree from uh, Arizona State University, which is very close to where not only Paolo Soleri was, but also I was influenced by... Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, who was actually still alive in 59 when I first got there. And uh, what happened was that when I graduated in 70, I formed a multimedia, uh, multidisciplinary group, which we called Environmental Communications. And it was a variety of uh, environmental psychologists, which were just beginning, um, historians, architects, planners, ecologists, uh, and from all over the world. But we had a core... Um, uh, kind of a group in Venice, California, which uh, uh, there were about 15 of us who worked day and night for like uh, 15 years uh, trying to understand the environment. And okay, now when in 1970 in that group you had not you weren't aware of McLuhan or you were? Uh, yes, um, it was that was um, I'm not sure the exact year that I became aware of McLuhan, 
but it was my job, uh, it was our job with all our research researchers uh, to be aware uh, of all the of the new things that could help change uh, the environment uh, uh, for the better. Uh, you may remember that it was in the early 70s, I think 71 to be exact, was the first Earth Day, uh, when the United States and then the world uh, became very aware of the importance of ecology and environment. And yeah, that was 1970, April 22nd was the first 19- Earth Day that I know of. Okay, you're right. It was 1970. I think it started at Caltech. I remember I went to either, I think it was Caltech where I went to the first one. Was that Do you remember the person named Ira Einhorn? Was he involved uh, across the country or just in the Philadelphia area? Did it start at Caltech? I know I went to an important one in Caltech at the very beginning. Right. So when you do your exhibition in the mid-'70s, are you reading McLuhan or aware of him? Okay, I'll get to that. Uh, Yeah. We were aware of everybody who who were really doing great things at the time, uh, understanding everything uh, from structure to the environment, uh, to psychology, we had environmental psychologists, and and so uh, it was very early in the 70s, probably uh, 71, 72, when we became aware of, of him. I've actually worked with many of the greats uh, who were very important at the early 70s. Uh, we brought, of course, uh, Marshall McLuhan to the studio around the middle 70s. Uh, before that, we brought Buckminster Fuller there, and it was in 75, right about the time that I actually met uh, McLuhan, that I worked pretty closely uh, with Buckminster Fuller. It's a habitat for uh, habitat, uh, uh, the UN habitat thing. It, it was in actually Canada. It was in uh, Vancouver at that time, where Fuller and 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 we uh, designed like uh, the house of the future. Actually, Fuller did most of the architecture, and we did most of the interior media. Right, and you even interfaced with Andy Warhol's scene at one point in there. Absolutely, because we we also had an art gallery where we were. Uh, involved with, with, uh, with an art gallery at Environmental Communications and a video gallery uh, where we showed the, the very beginnings of, of everything, including you know, the earliest uh, black and white videos of Bill Viola, who's become a great video artist. And video was just starting at the beginning of the 70s at that time, uh, thanks a lot to the work of David Ross, who was at that time at Long Beach uh, 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 Museum, Long Beach College Museum, which was first the first people to understand the, the future of video and art. Also, right, he went on. He was a controversial figure at the Guggenheimer Whitney in the mid '90s. I remember in New York City. It would have been the Whitney. <laughs> yeah, the Whitney, and then he went to San Francisco. He went on to uh, San Francisco to the uh, one of the museums in San Francisco. I forget which one. And, right now, since Mary can't, let's bring Mary in. Mary, what do you th- what do you think is going on in the mid '70s when you're in LA and encounter this museum? And want to bring McLuhan in, what, and you're doing education for Jerry Brown. Um, well, um, I, I was appointed by Jerry Brown in 1979, and it was during um, uh, wasn't it before when that? Prop 13 came in and really ruined teachers and everything. So Jerry Brown called me his media board member. And our budget was at that time about eight billion, and I was one of ten board members and probably the youngest. Right. And so I had to work a lot harder. Um, and I was given the responsibility during Prop 13 to go around. Oh, we had uh, because boxes of comp- I put through legislature, the full legislature and the Senate. 
working with Apple to ensure that every school had an Apple computer. Um, uh, and But the teachers were enormously scared to open up those boxes <laughs> in the back of the classroom, you know? Yeah. And so um, I got together with Shirley M. Hofstetter, former U.S. Secretary of Education, and some other great people, um, the president of USC and the president of UCLA, and we all got together at the university club and put together a program called um, uh, to honor Dad because he had uh, just passed away, you know, yeah. 80. Um, uh, the Marshall McLuhan Distinguished Teacher Award, which um, created a kind of, you know, impetus for teachers to open up those boxes because they were going to be awarded the Marshall McLuhan Award, won um, a huge ceremony in their honor and a monetary um, uh, stipend of 5000 each. And during that time, it was a lot. Mm. Well, it was so successful in L.A., we took it across California. <clears throat> and then the way Canada is, of course, uh, once you're successful in the United States, that's the only time you want uh, Canada is interested in you because Canada has this, like Dad would say, loss of identity. Yeah. Um, so um, the premier of Ontario, David Peterson, then, um, because we were getting all the, we were getting news, uh, Newsweek, People Magazine, blah blah blah. So it reached Canada. So Premier Peterson called me and said, "Could you bring the program to Canada?" So I did, and it was enormously successful across all ten provinces and two territories. And um, now, since the Internet is here, because we didn't do it on the Internet, obviously, because the Internet wasn't, you know, there. So now we're doing, we skipped some years because, well, for a lot of reasons. But now we're up and rolling again um, with the emphasis on social and digital media, and um, taking a, an approach quite different in, in respect to a city as classrooms that Dad wrote. Yeah. Um, where the students become the hunters and retrievers of information and the teacher becomes a reporting back system. But it's very important to understand the implications of digital and social media and how it's being used across different cultures. And so, um, uh, with the board that I have now, which is quite impressive, um, where we are taking it to uh, different countries, and um, probably virtually, because it will be easier to do it that way, um, and where each minister of education is responsible for the screening committee to select the teachers to... Um, you know, to find the best teacher and um, uh, and, and, and understanding what social and digital media is. And it, it's, it's a known fact, I read in the New York Times the other day, that Dad was the real uh, media or guru of social media. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, that, that's sort of what, it, it's taking an awful lot of work. Um, to put all this together, but we've established a team, which I've never had, and I found out how important a team is. I mean, we're talking about partnering with yeah. other organizations, 
Whereas you um, did it all yourself the first 25 years. Before I did it all myself and I burned out. Yeah. But now we're partnering with these incredible organizations. Uh, well, actually two right now. Um, and partnering is marvelous because it, it's give and take. You know, we uh, and, 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 and the partners, uh, the two are on our board of directors. So... Um, and vice versa. And um, they're very well known for global events, and they have a lot more know-how um, to do something like this than uh, the Marshall McLuhan Center. So we're learning a lot. Okay, Mary, let's go back to the late 70s. You meet David. I have some of the booklets you and Marshall wrote for David for presentations in museums. How do you see the Internet and social media relating to David's concerns of sustainable ruralism and almost a Luddite retreat from technology, though David probably would spell it better than what I mean. But, I mean, David won't even come over to this side of Maui. He can't stand the hotels and the ego, E-G-O tourism that goes on here. He's over on the rainy side. Well, I don't blame him because Maui's turned into such a tourist trap. Bob, I'm looking at, oh, go ahead. No, David, you respond to that. Respond yeah, to Bob, I'm, I'm, your eco-concerns and what Mary's doing with uh, global media. I'm, I'm looking at some of my notes right now, and I, wanna, I don't think we should go right to the end of the 70s, but okay. go back to the middle of the 70s when I first met Marshall McLuhan. Uh, yeah. The answer to your question, um, had I heard of him, yes, of course, uh, environmental communications, we were all into media. And there was no doubt before the middle of the 70s that Marshall McLuhan knew more about media than anybody. I mean, he really understood media, even wrote a book on it, and all his, many of his books. And, and, and actually, that was when David met Dad. It was in 75, because I remember when right. David, or even 74, came over to the, our house in Newport Beach. Yeah, I, what happened was she had arranged, uh, Jerry Brown was, was, I think, had just become governor at that time, and... Um, and he was interested in getting some, making some changes and getting great brains behind him. And he had asked uh, Mary, uh, I guess he, you had, must have met Jerry earlier in the 70s, and he, he had asked Mary to arrange for her father to come uh, to Los Angeles and do a little uh, tiny mini conference in her, in her living room in Orange County. And, I, and he said, yeah, I'll come if you get some interesting people there. And so she was aware of the environmental communications. So uh, you know, he kind of uh, really understood things, and so I was invited as a local. Uh, he, uh, uh, Marshall wanted some local understanders, so uh, that's where I met him uh, originally, and um, there was a kind of a, a meeting, which was great, and where Marshall and I understood that we were kind of two halves of a coin, and so the love was for the other half of the coin. Uh, he understood things in, in terms of words, and he understood the media, um, and he knew highways were architecture. We understood the yeah architecture was part of it, but we were really into media. We were express, we weren't building architecture. We were under we were using media to understand architecture and environment. At that time, uh, starting with the middle 70s, Marshall decided to bring his brains and his understanding uh, of uh, from uh, just the media into the environment and into um, uh, understanding um, 
the, the, the ecological things, both uh, physical and social, which is, and I think it was about that time where he wrote his first book on the subject, which was uh, The City's Classroom, which was understanding both the social and the physical environment, and that's what we were trying to do. Uh, but we were doing it from the media side. He was doing it from the more the intellectual side. And so we came together uh, with that mission, and I think the last few years of his life, um, I worked on three major projects, which I'd like to talk about later, uh, dealing with his bringing attention uh, to the important uh, matters of the environment, social, physical, ecology, and, and all that. So, Mary, what do you remember in the, of that early period with David Marshall? Well, what I remember is, um, actually, um, maybe it was about, I think it was about 77, uh, when Dad and Mom came out to visit me in Newport Beach. Yes, I have the newspaper articles. He came out and he had a press conference with Jerry Brown because Stuart Brand ar arranged it. And they asked, uh, in the newspaper articles, they asked McLuhan uh, what he thought of Jerry Brown's image as a politician. He said, well, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. So he's very diplomatic there. And uh, he also said there was no such thing as unemployment. Those are two headline statements by Marshall because of that press conference. And then there was a meeting where Stuart Brown and Jerry, uh, Stuart Brown and Brown, and that was written up in, in Coevolution Quarterly in about 78. Well, you, you asked me a question, and, and, I, and I haven't answered it. Okay. So when I was in Newport Beach, I said to Dad, um, uh, because he had City as Classroom under his arm, and he said, you know, Mary, we should disseminate this across California schools, and I agreed. And he said, how do you think we can do it? And I said, well, let's just call out Jerry Brown, I said. <laughs> I'd never known Jerry. So Dad said, well, do you think we should? And I said, absolutely. So I got on the phone and called Jerry Brown, and I ended up with his press secretary, Elizabeth. And then Elizabeth switches me over to Jerry Brown, and Jerry Brown had been trying to get hold of Dad for years. <laughs> so the next day we were on a plane uh, me, Mom, and Jerry, and, and Dad, to Sacramento. So Dad made it very clear that Jerry Brown's inner circle, which was Stuart Brand, um, uh, you know, um, Rusty Schweitzer, the astronaut, um, and a, a few others uh, who were there, not to hold a press conference because Dad didn't want one. Okay? <laughs> now, when I was sitting next to to mom, uh, Jerry kept looking at me, and mom whispered in my ear, I think he's interested in you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, um, of course, I looked pretty, you know, pretty snappy then. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, all of a sudden, after, of course, Jerry did not keep his word, and there was a press conference, and then Jacques Derzaghi, who was his Zen master, who was part of the um, uh, inner circle, uh, came over and whispered in my ear and said, would you be interested in being a member of the California State Board of Education? Well, that's a huge honor. <laughs> and I said, of course. <laughs> Why not? So, so you triggered the press conference, not Stuart Brand. It was because you were meeting the day before and flown up, and then he, he had one without Marshall really wanting one. That's what you're saying here. 
Oh, okay. Wait a second. You know, we gotta we gotta deal with this is David again. We have to deal with dates because something sounds a little strange here. And what sounds strange is that Elizabeth, who she referred to, the press secretary, actually had her last name. She, it was Elizabeth Coleman. And yeah, it was uh, Elizabeth Coleman. Do you remember her? Of course. She also worked at Environmental Communications. I we I gave can't her a job. Huh? We gave her a job at Environmental Communications when she got fired from KABC. She was a, an anchor on the local KABC LA affiliate, and she had just done an incredible, uh, whole, amazing story over a week um, on the environment, particularly on the fact of, of, of dolphins, uh, because uh, she discovered that they were killing dolphins and making tuna fish in Monterey. And when she, after she did that report, the advertisers got so mad they got the station to fire her, and then we hired her at Environmental Communications because she was brilliant. And then, and then what happened was Jerry stole her away from us because she was so brilliant and brought her to, um, to, to, um, to Sacramento. And her main job, besides being press secretary, was to be the, the uh, was to kind of be the general uh, to get the state involved in dealing with their environmental and ecological problems and then uh elizabeth had brought me up there and i think that was one of the things that that uh, marshall had been doing some uh, consulting on was the environment at that point not just media but right the, jerry must be mixed up because no no here are the dates jerry brown is got david jerry brown according to wikipedia was governor from 1975 to 83 and i'm pretty sure that press conference was in 77 i have a good memory for dates and the Co-evolution quarterly coverage of it. The transcription of the interview was, came out in winter '78. So, so the press conference is '77. Does that fit with what you think it is, uh, David? Yeah, it could have been '77, but it wasn't '78 because it was earlier than that. And and Elizabeth played a role earlier on in that because Elizabeth knew of of, of because Mary because they both worked at EC. Were you working at Environmental Communications at the same time Elizabeth was there, Mary? No. No. Okay. Anyway. The, the exact dates of that is, is I'm not sure. So well, you got he got him being governor in '75, and Elizabeth is with him right away, or a no, little no, no, later. No, no, she came in later. She she was not the first press secretary. She must have went up there around '78 uh, or '77 even. Right. If she was part of this thing, that would be '77. Uh, and she she put together some great things for 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 Jerry Brown. She was an amazing person. And I, and I must say. You know, um, on Facebook, it says, what are your interests? And my number one says Jerry Brown. <laughs> when I went to David Greenberg's Facebook, it said Jerry Brown. <laughs> you say that, you're, that you have Jerry Brown's following you, or that's your interest? Website says, what are your interests? I mean, not the website, but Facebook. That's your Facebook. Yeah, and then one of my interests was Jerry Brown. And when I went into David Greenberg's Facebook, he said Jerry Brown. Well, Jerry Brown is now governor again. <laughs> okay, so David, what what ideas did um, see? I have some of the correspondence between Mary and Marshall, and Mary uh, Marshall is is getting Mary. Uh, Understanding City's Classroom and distributing that. I remember that as of the content uh, of 76, 77 letters. Yep. I mean, the book comes out in 77. So you definitely, Mary, were working with the City's Classroom as the first project with Marshall, getting that out, right? 
Yeah, well, no, actually, no, there, were, there were two we or three. Get uh, you couldn't get out, but you, he was asking you to and, and explaining the book to you, and you were dialoguing on that book. That's what I remember. And you were probably uh, involved with Jerry Brown. So David, David Greenberg here, he remembers City's Classroom, too. So you, all, you guys are coming together around that book. Yeah, and that book is, was a very important book, which was not all that well-read in the United States. And, no, and um, it would be very good to take that book in, in, in the depths of some basement and to redo it to, uh, to greet, you know, like social and digital media, to, to greet what students are really doing. So get let me, let me talk about that. Let me talk about that for a minute, because I tried to do that about five years ago. Five years ago, after I finished uh, the book with Abrams on, on treehouses, they wanted me to do another book, and I, I said, well, I don't know what to do. And they said, well, we know what to do. Why don't you redo the work you were doing with uh, Marshall McLuhan, and let's redo Sidious Classroom. This is a big uh, publisher in New York about five years ago. So I immediately got into that idea of doing that. I thought it was a great idea. And I called up Mary, and I said, Mary, uh, you want to be involved in this? And I think she was a little busy at the time, and she wasn't all that – you know, going gung-ho right straight to do that. Um, but she said, oh, call up Eric. You know, he'll help you because he was involved in the city's classroom. So I called up Eric. Business. This was about four or five years ago. And uh, her brother Eric. And uh, Mary's saying that's a big mistake. Mary. She told me to do I mean, it. Eric, he's ruined a lot of stuff for me. Yeah, but you told me to call up Eric. Maybe you don't remember that. I know, that. I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, actually, Eric was all right. Eric was all right. He wasn't that bad. I mean, nothing really came of with Eric uh, in, 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 that, in one sense, but he did give me a lot of ideas, and we spent a, about the next six months corresponding back and forth a lot, and, and he was trying to help me understand where this book should go, the new book. And as it turns out, the direction that it should go into was too big, too important, too complex, and because of the Internet, the World Wide Internet, it, it, it shouldn't be a book. It should, have been a, it should be a website, an interactive website, um, a kind of an open sourcing website where the entire world would redo the book, The City's Classroom, which was part of what... Well, uh, that's interesting, David, because the partner that we partnered with, who's very, you know, ahead of his time, said, you know, because City's Classroom, Dad used to say this to me, uh, when a student leaves his or her living room and goes to school, that child has more uh, is gray at three, information-wise. By the time they get to the little round schoolhouse, they're completely bored. And why the little round schoolhouse four-wall structure has existed as many centuries as it has is just uh, just ridiculous. So anyway. Um, there's going to be a kind of shift in, in teaching soon uh, where actually, say, any given student will be given a history project. Well, that, that student, and maybe the teacher might go out, uh, goes out into the environment to find out how a building's made and is, uh, and, and is graded upon that. Now, a hey, second yeah. thing Dad mentioned, when I was on the State Board of Education, there was an awful lot being spoken about um, <laughs> called um, 
what do you call it when um, not autism, but it had to do with the eye. Um, yeah, dyslexia. Dyslexia. So Dad acquainted himself with this guy in Montreal who was this famous eye doctor, and they found out that. And when I was on the state board, it was a phenomena that in China that there was no there was no uh, dyslexia because the eye is is used to reading down uh, like a comic strip language, and a good eye reads across. So. Or no, wait. Maybe it's the opposite. But anyway, um, no, you're right. Uh, the fact that there was they not read any, down. Uh, yeah, they read down, um, uh, and 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 we read across. Now the eye was intended to actually read down. You know, like in, in the the comic strip, China. Well, what's interesting, Mary? I just found out yesterday why the Chinese read down. Uh, I was doing some research uh, on bamboo because my next book is on bamboo, which is a very ecological product on, for many reasons. And the first books were made actually on bamboo strips, vertical bamboo strips. So uh, there would be like 15 strips across, which would be each page of the book. And the writing always had to be down because the strips were vertical. And so the books in China, which were printed 2,500, 3,500 years ago, were, were printed on strips of, of bamboo, which is one of the reasons why they read down, because you can't go across on the bamboo. You have to go down, uh, which is kind of interesting. Well, that's the case of the medium dictating the content. Right, right. You know, um, one of the things that uh, I'd like to mention, uh, a couple of the projects that I worked on with uh, Marshall, important projects, uh, because some of them uh, are directly uh, kind of related to where I think Marshall McLuhan's work would have gone into the future. And that was the last two years of his life when we worked on two projects uh, very closely. Uh, they both had to do with the cities. Uh, one of them, the first one we started working on, was the life of Gay Gaylord Wilshire, who practically made the city of Los Angeles. And he was oh, quite a character. Wilshire. They do huh? a movie called Wilshire Boulevard? Yeah, we were going to do a movie called Wilshire Boulevard, and uh, uh, we, we, I made a partnership with, uh, with Marshall McLuhan. He was going to be the head researcher and one of the writers, and I was going to be the producer. And we got my famous uh, father-in-law, Waldo Salt, who has like three Academy Awards for, uh, uh, for screenwriting, like uh, Midnight Cowboy and Serpico and Coming oh, and Home. And did you know that David's great-grandfather founded the Teabag? Yeah, in San Francisco. That's another story. Anyway, I knew a lot of famous people and great people. And when Waldo met uh, when Waldo met uh, when Waldo Salt met um, Marshall, they really got along. And Marshall decided to really commit uh, to doing the research on this on this famous on, on Gaylord Wilshire. What was the reason they were both committed to the story of Gaylord Wilshire? Because he was like no, he was a hero and an anti-hero. He was good and he was bad. And there'd never been a movie written about someone who was actually both good and bad. And they were both ready to tackle it. Uh, uh, Gaylord Wilshire lived basically in Los Angeles, uh, where he started a, uh, a magazine called uh, Wilshire's Magazine, which was kind of a, a socialist uh, magazine, but he was also a capitalist. He was opposite. And then he run a, uh, ran afoul of the law and the federal government, and he got kicked out of America and had to go to Toronto. Is that before World War II or after? This was like 1906. 1906, okay. Before World War I. 
and 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 he went to Toronto, and he worked out of Toronto. So uh, Marshall had some some of his students do all the research in Toronto about Gaylord Wilshire's uh, work there and, and, and trying to understand everything from his early life there. And I was heading the research in Los Angeles at UCLA where his wife, Mary McLuhan, who was a, uh, a, I mean Mary McLuhan, Mary Wilshire, uh, was, <laughs> sorry about Mary, uh, Mary Wilshire uh, was also quite brilliant and she was the psychiatrist for all the, the, the crazy people in Hollywood. So in her, in her uh, uh, archives there, which are all kind of classified, but I, somehow Marshall got me in there because of who he was, um, we started doing a lot of research. And, and, and uh, Mary Wilshire actually brought the I Ching with the uh, Mellon daughter, her friend, uh, to Jung, and she brought so much from the East uh, to, to, the, to the world. Do you mean uh, Peggy Hitch- Mellon Hitchcock? Peggy Hitchcock? The Mellon daughter, you know, the very rich Mellons. They had a daughter around uh, after the turn of the century in 1900. Oh, okay, that's Peggy's mother. Okay, sorry. Yeah, Go ahead. The, 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 I'm going to talk about a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but that was the founding of, of Los Angeles around that time, at the beginning of the 20th century. And Does that bring in aspects of the movie Chinatown? Is that what Walter Salt wrote? Salt, he wrote no, no, that uh, was written by someone else. But, but, but we, wanted to, we wanted to make a movie about how a city was made and the kind of people that made cities. You know, mm. and one of the great things about uh, about the idea of the um, of, of 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 the city's classroom was Marshall's concept is you just learn more from life than you ever learn in a classroom. So the city's classroom meant okay, you just learn from your environment. Well, you can take that not only from man's built environment, which was a city, but also nature. So uh, we had a lot of fun working on this this movie idea. And then the and then and then what happened while we were doing that we got approached by uh, PBS uh, because we were, our work was getting really cutting edge and everybody was interested in the environment suddenly including television not just movies and and we came up with the idea uh, Marshall and I to do a, a a TV show for KCET which is a local affiliate in LA uh, uh, called Ecoland and I'm not he probably made up the word I can't remember who made up the word called Ecoland. And, but, and we were well into working with uh, KCT at the time when, unfortunately, Marshall died. But we did a lot of research on the concept of Ecoland, which was not only learning from the city, but it was learning from the entire world, both the, the built environment of the city as well as the natural environment. And so when, about five years ago, when I wanted to redo the book on, uh, on, on the city's classroom, it just got to be so big because I realized that the real work that we were ended up doing was bigger than the, than the city. It was like the whole world. It was this eco-land that we were going to do. And he was going to be, KCT just saw him as being the greatest, you know, kind of like distinguished, uh, like they've never had on TV before, like this distinguished, uh, uh, you know, kind of post. And, and environmental communications was going to be involved in bringing all the, the media, the images, and the video to it all. And everybody was really excited about this thing. So when we, I, we decided to, uh, to try to do the, redo the book, we also decided we should redo Ecoland. And I've done a lot of work in the last three or four years, which I'll, I'll send to you based on the work of the last year of Marshall's life uh, on Ecoland. It was all you were able to retrieve your archives and find them relevant. Absolutely. Not only that, to go on to the next level and to start updating it. And I had to, like, pretend I was, like, looking at the world I was understanding the world like Marshall understood the media 
and mm. like he was about to understand the world. And it was, I took it on my, you know, I spent like most of the last four years or five years kind of trying to do this. And I have a lot of work. I, I may have given you some of that, but I'll send it to you so you can put some of it on your website. But oh, great. Now, t- talk about, David, you're, you're asked to participate in forums in China all the time. Give an example of your work in that world. Okay. Sure, of course. Um, I, I've been, uh, I started, uh, I kind of left Los Angeles around 1994. Uh, After you tried to help the Watts right, debris. Watts, the South Central. I was, uh, I was just, I, my background was urban design, and when they started to burn down uh, Los Angeles again, uh, the Watts riots was in 65, but in 91, when they tried to burn it out again in South Central, uh, I decided it was time for me to go to work. And I started a big company with some media people, actually, uh, Dr. David Viscott and other media people. And we have many, uh, with nonprofit with uh, thousands of people working all over the city trying to rebuild Los Angeles. But there was no money, so we had to rebuild Los Angeles psychologically through the arts and through media. And it was actually a great success. But you know what? After four years of a lot of success and doing uh, great media things and opening up uh, – and, and, and actually getting the students to do City as Classroom. We got young little black kids to like, like uh, in these centers to, to use photography and to go out and study the environment and, and all kinds of – we actually were doing the City as Classroom, and, but expanding it and, and more and more. And it was all very exciting, but after about four years, I kind of burnt out. I left Los Angeles. I escaped to Maui, to the other side of Maui, and I started all over again with a little tiny treehouse, which then brought me to China. But when I went to China and I would do these treehouses together, they said, oh, you're a planner. We never met a planner before because they didn't have them in China, not since like 5,000 years did they have a decent planner. <laughs> so I started doing planning projects. Maybe it's a slight exaggeration, but I started doing planning projects. Uh, the governor of this island, Hainan, which is a big uh, 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 province in China, loved my ecological work and sent me all over and, and did these master plans of eco um, sort of ecological, sustainable ruralism projects all over the island, most of them which did not get built, but some of them did. And then that caught the attention of uh, the last few years, several years, of the Chinese Academy of Sciences has an ecological environmental division. And they took me all around to all the big cities. They said, you know, you should be working with the cities because you know too much to just be out in the countryside. So then I started going to these big conferences in big cities, big cities you've never even heard of, like 31 million people in Chongqing, you know, like 15, 20 million people in Beijing and Shanghai. And actually the government, the Ministry of uh, Urban Housing and Rural Development, sent me to these to give these lectures. And the lectures are basically based on a lot of the early work that I did and my understanding of the city's classroom. And I would show uh, these lectures to the Chinese, to the, the leaders of Chinese in the media, and explaining to them the mistakes if you look at the American city carefully, the mistakes that were made in America and that they should not, the Chinese should not make the same mistakes. Well, they were very happy because they were beginning to realize a few years ago that they were making big mistakes and they, they had to look at things more ecological and more sustainable and to relook at their cities. And so it was my job to actually bring the city of classroom to China, and that's what I've done for the last three or four years, partially with the support of the Chinese government. However, the Chinese government is like, a very large, complex thing. And even though they were willing to pay time and money for lip service and to, to understand these things, to actually make changes 
in China has been very difficult, and I have not been able to make a lot of changes yet late, lately, but I've been trying. That's really amazing. Uh, Mary, what, do you, what, what comes to your mind? Doesn't, doesn't that fit with what you're trying to do, or doesn't it? Well, uh, yes, it does, because um, originally the reason City of Classroom developed was um, my father was absolutely um, frustrated at <clears throat> the, um, uh, the, the teacher-student communication that was going on across Canada. The students couldn't get along with the teachers. The teachers couldn't get along with the students. They were absolutely bored. And it was at that time Dad said we have to do something to engage uh, both the teacher and the student. So that's how now, to the project that I'm doing, um, you know, as you know, with all the multimedia devices that students are, are using um, in this four-wall structure, it has really nothing to do with, you know, what's being taught today with the teacher. I mean, they're totally disengaged. So more and more we're seeing the student um, go out into his, her own environment. Um, using this new technology and finding out uh, more and more what's going on environmentally, which is really the classroom, and where the teacher's role changes. So um, uh, this new project that we're doing um, has obviously a classroom effect, but um, of course it has to be updated because the city's classroom really is you know, if you look at each chapter, I mean, it's really behind the times. <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, the so the, the students use the schools for other purposes, for socializing and hooking up. Uh, and so the teacher is left to be a babysitter and he's not even required. And McLuhan says in City's Classroom for kids to go, just go to local radio stations or different businesses and just ask to be shown around what's going on. And that's right. how they get jobs. They maybe uh, have new ideas, and then the, they do it. But now kids today get jobs by designing new games. So they're out in the digital landscape creating a whole world using the classroom and um, getting roles for themselves. That's what you're talking about. And the school is actually used for something else by kids now. Well, I think the school's going to be the whole, whole – some uh, of the four-wall structure is really going to be obsolete very soon. Um, and, to, and students are going to be graded – on, on their um, successes um, in curriculum, working with the environment. I mean, that's what it's all about. But what's the environment? What is it? What do you mean by environment? Well, environment means. I mean, it could. Uh, you know, it has a kind of broad definition. Uh, the environment. You know, interviewing architects, interviewing how buildings are made, interviewing. Um, uh, you know, uh, being out in the real world. Going on American Idol and finding out how American Idol works. Right. <laughs> I'm doing that soon, uh, maybe. And, and You're so, doing what, David? Well, I, I can't talk too much about it, but there's. You're going on American Idol? But they're starting a, a new program, which I can't talk too much about. Oh, okay, good. It does deal with hey, the uh, and I may be Hey, Bob, it's Michael here. I just uh, something for Mary. Um, I, just, I just happen to have a... Uh, coincidentally, a document uh, from uh, McLuhan and Hearst. It's dated August 4th, 1977, and uh, they actually wrote. Uh, this is just to verify your 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 your, your dates there. 
August the 4th, 1977, on the Center for Culture and Technology Stationery, they wrote to Governor Edmund G. Brown. On Edmund Brown, right, the summer of 77. Yeah. Yeah, on dyslexia or learning disability. And basically, it's a, it's a letter really where McLuhan's trying to introduce Hearst to come out and talk to uh, Governor Brown about uh, dyslexia. Yeah, that's who you met, Mary. Hearst was the doctor from Montreal. The eye doctor. I'd, seen him. I'd heard about him through Dad. Right. And and, and 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 Dad was frustrated because you know a lot of students are kept back uh, for reasons uh, uh, called quote unquote slow learners. They're not slow learners. They have uh, other problems that you know. It, it, you know when you take the word problem, you know here in in, in North America or in the United States. Uh, most problems are solved if you leave the country and go to other countries. <laughs> yeah, you get out of that the, this environment, go to another environment. That's right. And 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 so, you no, know, it's not just uh, dyslexia; it, it's all sorts of things. Yeah, it's the environment they're in. They have a problem of uh, resonating or tuned into the environment. They can't do it. Yeah, and most of the students are not so-called slow learners. Um, uh, uh, they have other problems. They have <laughs> that are being addressed. You know, like Finland is one of the biggest countries that addresses just about everything. They're on the top of the list uh, 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 um, in all countries uh, uh, with the top grades for all students. So what are they doing? Could I could I ask Mary a question today about in the in today's Toronto Globe and Mail, they report yeah. that the Ontario Teachers Federation are cautioning teachers not to engage with social media because they might get caught up uh, like uh, with recriminating things like a picture or having a beer at a bar or something like that. <laughs> they, they actually this actually reported in the paper today. Well, that, sh that shows you the problem in education. The teachers are the mafia. They keep addicted to the book format. And that's what Mary's problem is. Like you're in looking into standardized testing and the ridiculousness of that. Right, Mary? Well, if you take the word standardized testing, it's disgusting because you cannot take a test called standardized testing and measure all students across the U.S. on a standardized testing method because there's a disparity that exists in different neighborhoods where, you know, kids don't have computers. They don't have this. They don't have that. And when you standardize tests, all students on the same test, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's something I'm totally against. And I'm finding out that um, even the union looking at it, the AFT, you know, and uh, um, I'm just amazed that they're taking a standardized test for all students of all neighborhoods, of all um, achievements. They can't do that. <laughs> well, it's a legacy of the Gutenberg homogeneity. That is the actual, it was a service 150 years ago to do that, but not now. And yet the, the teachers are like a mafia. They will not give up their fortress. They're saying, we'll, we'll not even engage with social media, uh, you know, and teach them book stuff. That's what you're up against, Mary. The other thing is, um, uh, publishers, as you know, 
uh, have for so many years set the curriculum for our schools, and they make billions and billions and billions of dollars. Well, what's happening now, as you know, through uh, media that's coming out, you push a button and you can read a story, okay? You can push a button and, 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 and read the curriculum that is demanded of the students. I mean, the book is <laughs> like to turn a page, like I do. But the book is becoming obsolete. Well, it, they, uh, so the publishers can't sell their books or they're imposed on the, uh, the schools? Um, they're still imposed upon the schools, but um, as technology, as you know, um, as technology, technology changes almost every month. There's something new that comes out. You can't keep up with that. Um, that's, that's right. And, and, and I would say that in the educational system, that's where it's most affected. Okay, uh, so, so how does that relate to David when he's designing cities or proposing ideas? It sounds like me, David, you give up that stuff and go to the jungle or to no, no. deserted I, islands. No, I think that if we pursue the city as classroom, it fits right like a hand in glove to what David is doing. Well, David tried it, and why didn't it take David well, five years ago? What I realized was that in my, from what I was looking at was, and what I talk about when I'm in China, is it's more complicated than just the city. Uh, and that the concept of Ecoland addressed that further complication. And uh, so it's a combination should be city of uh, the classroom, I mean the city is only one half of the problem because you look at China, and uh, more so actually than if you look at America, is that uh, uh, the success of the environment, ecologically, social, and physical, deals with the, the natural environment as well as the agricultural environment, as well as the urban environment, and they're all inter, inter, intertwined. And actually, it's more, even more complicated than that because you can't just take China, you have to take the whole world because if China gets a cold or Japan or anybody, if something happens, it will affect the entire world because we now have like some, there's just a global ecology. There's just, and everything is part of one thing. So you can't any longer just separate the city if you're really good to understand it. And my work in China has led me to understand uh, the oneness of, of ecology, which involves the, the nature, the agriculture, the rural areas, and the city areas. And so that's why they well, both Well, you know what together. I'm thinking, David, and it's always worked for me, if you take a new idea, and it's not so new, but it is new to most countries, you know, this, uh, uh, reversing the whole um, uh, responsibility of teacher and student, okay, where the student becomes a hunter and retriever of information and the teacher becomes a reporting back system. Or the teacher goes out with the student, which I even like better. You take another, let's, let's not say China. Let's take a progressive country, you know, um, uh, um, and, and um, uh, try it out there. Because there's this whole thing about if it works in Australia or if it works in uh, Spain, um, or, or other countries that are receptive to it, okay, and it works, then uh, the fact that it works will um, engage 
other teachers, other languages to move forward and 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 implement and implement it. So you're saying find a country where the program works. Well, where it will work. And then so it becomes like, the flavor of the month. It becomes a hit, and now everybody else tries to adopt that. I'm just saying that there are countries. China's, you know, a developing country. But if you take other countries that are uh, uh, very receptive to new ideas, and if this is not such a new idea, an idea that, that, that needs to be implemented into schools. Like, for instance, Australia would love it. I know that for a fact, the Minister of Education there. Um, I also know that, that the U.K. would love it, that France and Germany would love it. So you take countries that are enormously uh, receptive to it, and then, it, and then the news of the teacher and student going out into the environment and studying the environment for grades becomes so important that it gets that other countries take it on. But I, I really think that that's the way to go. You're saying that David should not try to judge what he can do with his program just in China. Oh, absolutely, because, I mean, I, I'm very proud of David, but just saying that... Um, you know, China is obviously a very competitive country with the United States, and they're doing enormously well, obviously, and I'm not sure we should use the word competitive because they, uh, they're ahead of us in many ways. But um, their culture um, is a lot more difficult <laughs> to get into than other countries. So if the ministers of education of other countries that David would be working with, with the um, the reception of such would be uh, different. Would be more. What do you think of that, David? Well, first of all, um, I, I I don't just go to China. I spend time in in uh, several places in Asia, but also in in Europe and in the United States. And and um, when I'm in China, and I spend a lot of time in China, about a third of my time for the last ten years each year. Oh, last year I went uh, seven times to China doing things. And uh, one thing that I feel when I'm in China, which is really interesting, is that, uh, I mean, China has a lot of problems on a lot of different levels, and it's amazing what they've done in the last 30 years, absolutely amazing. But the one thing about when you're in China and you look to the West, and I mean to Europe or America, what you feel very strongly is that China is very interested in working very hard towards the future and thinking about the future. Their understanding and feelings about the past are very nil. When you look at the West, the entire West, uh, uh, Europe and America, is just grasping and holding on to the past, and there's very little energy or talk or understanding about the future in this country. They're just trying to hold on to the past, the good old days. Well, China, you know, doesn't have any good old days to begin with, and they're only interested in the future, and they are open to a lot of new things in China, and all more and more, and they're also very media conscious, and, uh, you know, uh, with their, there are probably more people on the Internet per capita, in, in, in period, in China than anywhere in the world, and they have a very forward-looking, a positive thing. 
Now there are some big problems in China, of course. The government is uh, is like a, has a lot of control over the media, and more recently you see even over art. However, at the same time, the base the the basic thing. Well, first of all, no other government has ever paid for me to fly there all the time and give lectures on on you know making the place better, and which I do all the time in China. It's one of my jobs there. Uh, so I would disagree with 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 Mary a little bit on the potential and the need that China has for the future. Uh, you know, it's hard to even talk to America. I mean, maybe some countries are a little bit interested in the future, but America is too, you know, hung up with the past, and most of Europe is. You know, and there's very little talk or interest in the future where China is all talk and all interest in building a future. And, and that future has a lot to do with media. Yeah, and you told me, David, years ago that – you feel that it, China is Florence, you know, with the Medici's or something, Florence there 1500. There's a renaissance going on in China right now, yeah. There, there, uh, of a kind of a renaissance. Uh, you know, re the renaissance uh, 400 or 500 years ago in, in, in Italy was based on the fact that there was uh, a shitload of money uh, with very rich merchants in, 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 uh, in, in, in Italy, and also... Uh, kind of some social upheaval. Uh, the Catholic Church was beginning to waver a little bit, and, and they didn't have the power that they had. And that's the same kind of uh, what's happening in China right now. There's a shitload of money, and there's some social upheaval. The social yeah, China is winning. China is winning right, right now. They're winning because they're looking to the future. They're winning because there is true social upheaval there, and they're winning because there's a shitload of money there. Right. Now, what was the impact of the Olympics? We watched it together here in, in uh, Wailea. Uh, we watched the amazing architecture and that whole scenario. What impacted that, whatever that you call that, what the artist did, in the Olympics in 2008 on design architecture after? Well, an, an incredible impact. And, you know, you just, like, drive down any street in Shanghai or particularly Beijing, I would say. It's amazing architecture amazing art uh, you know artists are now selling uh, the last uh, uh, Sunday there was a Chinese uh, contemporary artist that sold a painting for 10 million dollars and uh, so the, the country is so moving ahead in art and architecture and in science and so many things and and mixing these things and I, I spent the last uh, actually last summer working with these people working very closely with these people even Ai Weiwei, who's now in jail because he's like tried to go too fast. Right. Working closely with him, who's a good old friend of mine for years, many years, as are many of the people doing advanced work in China, from the Chinese Academy of Sciences to the art world to the architecture world, and it's very exciting what's happening there. And uh, you know, the, well, David, do you, do you see um, there's so much money that there can be private investors and in new things that goes around the Chinese government? Well, yeah, the, the, you know, they, they um, what would you have to well, be a little know, careful? Well, you know, that was a good could... question because um, most of the Silicon Valley, as you know, David, has such a vested interest in China that to introduce uh, your ideas into China uh, could be enormously attractive to some of these dudes that have a vested interest in China, i.e. computers, Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you should see oh, the Apple um, Store, the humongous, beautiful Apple Store in Beijing that they just finished <laughs> about a year ago. I mean, it is so much bigger than the one in New York City, which is pretty cool. And, and you know, 
But uh, it's just amazing uh, what they're doing there. And actually, they're even, uh, you know, Google, who, who, who finally told the, the Chinese government to go screw themselves because then they didn't agree with, the, with going along with the government. They did it very easily. They just kind of changed. Well, you can, Google still works in China. You just go, you know, www.google.com, and it takes you to Hong Kong, and it just, you know, it just, it just shows up HK, and you can still, people in China can still do Google. They kind of outsmarted the Chinese government. Uh, I mean, I just suppose they could block it from Hong Kong, but I don't think they're allowed to block from Hong Kong because they, they own it or something like that. But, you know, there is, she's right, uh, there are many uh, American, uh, you know, kind of high-tech uh, media companies and, and Internet and, and companies that are doing incredible things in China because China's the future, and they're really into it, not only just with computers, but with uh, Twitters and, and, and all kinds of highly sophisticated uh, communication systems, which, uh, you know, you see I, I can tell you right now who the guy is that would be interested in everything that you're saying. Yeah. His, his name is Warren Buffett. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he called me about eight years ago, and I didn't know who he was, and yeah. I put him on hold. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, he was I, a I, fan I, of McLuhan. Buffett is doing yeah, he's a McLuhanite. I gave a lecture in, uh, I, I gave a lecture in, uh, in, uh, Shenzhen, which is like the new big bad city in China. I mean, uh, uh, Gore, in his latest book called Our Choice, uh, says that Shenzhen, which is suddenly, it used to be 50,000 people 20 years ago. Now it's like 16 million people. But that's where they make everything that we use. And, and there's just the cities become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every year. And I was giving a lecture at a place, and the guy, the head of uh, BYD, it's a car company, which Warren Buffett put a lot of money into, is doing so well. They're electric cars, and and Warren Buffett has had a big, uh, has had a lot of, uh, of 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 luck there, and and doing great things there. Also, uh, well, I can introduce you to him because I can apologize for hanging up on him. That would be great. That would be great. Who was also interested in China? There are people like uh, George Soros, who is a very big player in. Uh, uh, that guy in New York is very liberal. And he's another McLuhanite. I read one of his articles. George Soros, yes, ago. he is. He's a very brilliant guy, and uh, yeah. and he's doing some positive things in China too. And actually, uh, uh, an old girlfriend of mine who's a lawyer is his lawyer, and I may have some access to him, maybe possibly. But you know, the, but the big, uh, but um, the America's investment and America's interest in China will make it happen because they can't do much more. I mean, like people like Buffett. You know, you invest, he invested a small amount of a few million dollars in this electric car company in China, and it goes places. I mean, if he put a few million dollars into an electric car company in the United States, it wouldn't go anywhere uh, for right. a whole bunch of reasons, because the United States is looking to the past. They're not looking to electric cars for the future. They're right, and interesting enough, maybe this is off the topic, but um, on the news the other day, um, you know the insurance companies that we have for cars. He's taking Geico which he created, into China right away. Warren Buffett is. Oh, yeah. And, I, and, and Warren Buffett is a real McLuhanite. He's quoted dad, if you go on the Internet, about 20 times. Now, remember when we were talking a couple of years ago, he, he sent a FedEx message to you while we were on the phone, and it, it's something like a medium is the message. Remember that? Oh, yeah. So yeah. Warren Buffett and George Soros. Those are our two guys, David. What about Kissinger? Is he too old? Who? Henry Kissinger. What about him? He, well, I, I, as you know, I was with Henry yeah. uh, for a while. 
um, he's 87, but he's a pistol, and I, you know, he wanted to go on my board of directors, and my board thought he might be too controversial. Right, yeah. Okay, so David, are you, you say the name McLuhan often, at least once in your lectures? Are you the main uh, reminder of McLuhan to your audience there in China? Yes, of course. It was uh, my work with the Chinese Academy of Sciences and, and working on this Ecoland uh, concept was uh, very much, because it was based with McLuhan, I give, he's given credit and all this stuff. Yeah. So I don't know uh, if, how Derek de Kirchhoff or Eric himself, if they go to China, but you seem to be the one who's successfully carrying the torch of McLuhan in, in the new China. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay, so how do we – I'd like to bring Scott Taylor in, who was our guest last week, because he's been approached by China in some level. Scott, if you're still there, would you have a comment on what Mary and uh, David are saying? Well, I've enjoyed the conversation very much, uh, particularly as it pertained to China. And uh, I just uh, last uh, July uh, was a keynote address speaker at an international conference in Xi'an. And it was uh, the Digital Art Week conference, and it was on um, digital art and spirituality. And uh, the... Uh, the institute there, uh, 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 the Academy of Fine Arts in China, is actually uh, d- dispersed, distributed over uh, the entirety of uh, China. And uh, I was uh, placed um, directly beside the president uh, because of my connection with McLuhan. Uh, there is tremendous interest uh, in um, uh, the uh, fine arts. Uh, on uh, on McLuhan and on uh, what uh, he was all about, and particularly as it pertains to uh, contemporary China. And so many times during the time I was there, uh, I uh, was able to expound and talk uh, about McLuhan. And there are many people there whom I'm now friends with, and uh, we discuss uh, uh, regularly um, uh, some of these uh, extensions of his thought. As a matter of fact, the academy there uh, uh, actually has, uh, uh, there's a, a, a PhD student at the academy who has been assigned to me to act as a kind of liaison uh, between uh, Canada in terms of um, art science and developing technologies uh, of art and science in their relationship. Um, and of course, um, I'm uh, absolutely perfectly happy to discuss this uh, totally in terms of McLuhan's context. What are the Chinese, are they aware of social autism in the advanced way you write about it with virtual reality and all that? Do they understand you? No, I haven't talked to uh, them uh, at all about this. So what level of McLuhan are they interested in? What words do they respond to or ideas? Well, they still understand um, some of the uh, ideas related to um, extensions and about also how technology uh, is colonizing uh, our uh, our, uh, embodied uh, sensibilities. And so they're particularly interested in um, virtual reality and um, uh, the digital aspects of that. Um, In the 70s, the, the way we had it in the 70s and 80s. They think it's a colonizing. They don't recognize that it's actually user-friendly now. Well, 
Uh, yeah, they're still uh, a little bit concerned about it in terms of um, uh, political control mechanisms. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, are they concerned yeah, like France? Are they concerned like France about their culture? Um, I'm I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, uh, of course, are at the moment competing with the United States for uh, domination of the electromagnetic spectrum. And uh, there's uh, a movement to try and uh, move a lot of uh, political and economic discussions into what we would think is telecommunicational and virtual reality spaces. And um, some of the models for uh, that kind of activity, of course, are uh, involved in um, uh, virtual reality art forms, and also say in the the the, the way that the allosphere in um, uh, in in uh, California has been set up. Which one is the allosphere? What level is that? Well, the allosphere is um, a multimedia uh, auditorium uh, where which is three stories high, and there is a bridge running through the center of a spherical space. And you can mount the bridge and then in three dimensions, um, uh, holographically, uh, 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 telecommunicational information is uh, displayed. And um, one of the people that's mainly involved with it is the fellow uh, uh, dealing with uh, liquid architecture, um, uh, Novak, uh, Marcos Novak. And um, he, uh, and for example, what they do is they do um, displays of um, audiovisual uh, depictions of uh, the inner neurology of uh, of the brain and um, synaptic kinds of, of activities, and also uh, uh, models of um, uh, physical actions in terms of um, molecules and proteins and things like that. Would they be responding to the artist who did the? Uh the 2008 Olympics in, in Beijing? What, what do they think of what he did? I have no idea. Pardon? Well, David, do, do you, yeah. you know some of the people connected to that artist, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's been an awful, his name is Ai Weiwei, and uh, he has an interesting uh, uh, history. Uh, his father was one of the greatest all-time poets in China, and Mao sent him, his father and him, uh, to... Uh, you know, the desert, the Gobi Desert, was some desert for like, uh, you know, 20 years when he was brought up there in the desert. And um, he actually studied art in the United States in New York for about 10, 15 years and then went back to China. Um, and his, he's like a, Ai Weiwei is like a great artist, I mean, a great thinker. And what, what's great about him is that he brings, uh, he brings to the world of art uh, two things. He brings the past of the greatness of China uh, along with the future of uh, greatness of China. Um, and he somehow uh, got involved a little bit too much politically and has gotten in trouble, and right now he's in jail, but and has been for almost a week. But yeah, part, this is the guy who did the Olympics three years he, later is in jail. What he did to the Olympics was they had hired, uh, they had asked him, the government, uh, who liked him a lot because he was one of the great architects, artists in China in, in 2004, um, they asked him to work with Herzog de Marone, who were the architects for the big uh, uh, Olympic Stadium. And what he brought to it was a Chinese architectural art feeling, 
he turned it into like a, a, a bird's nest, and that's why it was called the bird's nest. Uh, and because he gave it that basket bird's nest look, uh, and which was really great. And he gives, he brings a lot of the old Chinese art into the, in, into the future art. And, and uh, he's kind of very, uh, very well connected. But one of the reasons why he's so important, and uh, he's also very savvy uh, with the digital world. And he's, he had a blog for 10 years where all the people that would come visit him from all over the world, he's very worldly. Uh, every day he would have a blog showing all the, uh, the influences uh, from the world uh, that, that are coming to China. And he was a, a really great person. They finally stopped his blog, but, and then he started Twittering. And um, he got in a little trouble politically because as an architect he knew he's been fought, trying to fight corruption. And he knew that there was a lot of corruption that brought, brought a lot of problems of kids being killed in the Sichuan earthquake uh, by corruption. And when he brought that to, to the attention of the government, they got very pissed off. They beat him up. They did this. What year was that? You're talking about the 1976 one or a later earthquake? No, the one uh, three years ago, the 2008 one. Oh, okay. Uh, it was somewhere around 2000, about the same time as that. And, but he also said that he was also pissed off that the government was using his design, his great design, of the Olympic Stadium for some their political advantage, saying, oh, communism is so great because look at the great thing we built. Well, that wasn't communism that built it. That was art, you know, and art looking not to the, from the, not created from the communist uh, world, but from the past of Chinese world, you know, and the future right. of Chinese world. He and criticized so, the Olympics at the time they were on. He did. He didn't even show up for the opening. And he did <laughs> because it was, he saw, thought of it as being too political, and it was a bit political, but also, it's kind of complicated. The uh, and the media. David, tell how you were used as an ecologist. They had to have a patina of ecological concern in July 2008, and they interviewed you and gave you big coverage in the Chinese daily. Talk about how that interview. That's an interesting yeah, thing. And they've done more recent interviews. Just last last uh, summer, they did another interview. And yeah, they, they've been using me a little bit uh, because of my uh, my appreciation for some positive things that are happening in China, but also uh, because. Uh, of the way I look at the ecology and environment. But I want to talk more about media right now and the okay. media in China. And um, what made that great, that opening ceremony, was not only the architecture and the art, but it was also the, uh, the media and the art. And it was the work of Zhang Yimou, who is that uh, great uh, director uh, who's done many great films uh, uh, in China, uh, Zhang Yimou. And he did, he did the whole opening ceremony, which was mind-blowing. It was like art on a level that West could never compete with. I mean, it was like a television screen that covered the whole... I mean, whoever thought of a television screen, you know, 100 feet or 300 feet long and, and being able to do artwork on it in real time and all the stuff. I mean, they, they took media and art onto a whole other level with that. And they blew away the world. And, you know, and even uh, America's... Uh, uh, greatest directors, uh, you know, that, uh, that year they were al almost made Zhang Yimou, the, uh, the year of 2009, uh, uh, the most important man on the cover of Time. And, um, you know, and in the end he wasn't someone else, but, but uh, because he did create the greatest show on earth. And I think right now is that uh, when you talk about China, uh, media is an incredibly important thing. Uh, more important than the United States is, I think, media. Uh, because media in the United States has become a kind of a meaning, there's a meaninglessness to it. Whereas, a, mean, a meaningless or meanness? A meaninglessness to the media in the United States, a television, 
you know, sucks. Well, television sucks in, in China, too, but, but um, you know, somehow it's uh, the media in the United States is... is uh, well, it's cynical. It's in the losing position. China's yeah, got the positive winning atmosphere yeah, in their it's, media. It's just... It's just, it's getting, you know, it's, it's becoming meaningless because they're always looking to the past, uh, doing things safely. China doesn't do things just to be safe. They're, they're looking more to the future. And so, uh, you know, and nothing could have been looking more to the future uh, than that opening ceremony in 2008. But every year they're doing more and more looking to the future. And the media is playing a very important role from the artists to the filmmakers to the architects um, and to the, uh, you know, and, and they're brilliant people. I, I, I work uh, pretty closely. I've worked the last few years uh, with the big art institutions there. Uh, there's a, uh, something called CAFA, C-A-F-A. That's the Chinese Academy of Fine Arts. And their main school is in, uh, they have two of them actually in Beijing, where I'm a guest lecturer and I go there and I also take projects there and work with the students there. And the students are so brilliant using computers and media stuff that, uh, to create things that you can't possibly imagine. Like I brought a project in where I wanted to do a very large outdoor art gallery over 50 square kilometers uh, just outside of Beijing, like an hour away in the foothills, not far from the, forbidden, uh, from the uh, Great Wall, and where the students came up with the greatest ideas on their computers of very large scale like earth artworks in color using flowers, bamboo, all different kinds of natural materials and, and unnatural materials too in creating great designs on a very large scale, uh, all, you know, uh, digitally with, with computers. And, and, you know, and we were working along with a local uh, museum there who was sponsoring the thing. And, and uh, so, I mean, you, you, somebody like me can work in China and do great things because you've got these incredible students who are brilliant, you know, in these incredible schools where, uh, you know, they're doing things in their art schools there and their architecture schools you would never see in this country because... You know, this country is still, you know, very linear uh, and based on the old concept of modern architecture. Well, China is not, you know, like that at all. They don't have that kind of history and that background. They're kind of totally eclectic, totally into everything, totally into, you know, simultaneity and, and craziness. And uh, so, you know, I think China... Um, it's not the state culture, these new kids, that you think Chinese are. Yeah, there is there is no state culture. They're just they're, they're, the state is just like, you know, they just uh, <laughs> there's a there are places in China that are amazing. It's a place called Chijaba, uh, that means seven nine eight, where they took over uh, 50 square blocks of former old kind of munitions factories and and brought in art galleries and art studios and art cafes and 50 square blocks. And just outside of town, there's one that's uh, 20 times bigger where the artists are playing an incredible role in the environment, and they're using a lot of digital art and everything. Uh, every media is, is open. Uh, you know, okay, so Scott, it sounds like to me that, that, that the Chinese are into the TV landscape and spectacle, whereas you and your newsletter, Cybernautics, you, you, you show, I don't know, real advanced stuff. What do you think of the art that you present as opposed to the spectacle of the Olympics three years ago? The art that you find, Scott. Well, I, I tend to uh, agree uh, with uh, what our Fred David here has said, and uh, he is much, much more familiar, in fact, with what's going on with the students and art in, in China. And uh, what we see, uh, the art taking place on all different uh, scales and levels. And 
we also see it being uh, produced uh, uh, with group dynamics much, much more proficiently in some ways than I think uh, group uh, processes are uh, taking place here in the West. I mean, what I heard over and over again from the Chinese art students was, uh, what is it that you have to teach us? And over and over again, I found myself saying, well, it's you that are, are, are teaching us. There's this idea that China is imitating the West when, in fact, uh, they are moving very, very rapidly uh, forward. Uh, wouldn't you say so? Absolutely. David? Absolutely. Because they're not stuck in... Um you know, our, our, art, our art establishment is such an establishment, and it's so, so linear, the development, as well as our architecture establishment. It's so linear, starting from hundreds of years ago, going in a straight line. And if you, you know, not that there aren't some artists that kind of vary from that straight line a little bit, but for the most part, you know, we're stuck in the past, and the past is controlling us. Well, yeah, we're a visual I, culture, I and China is tactile. Don't, don't rely on some good stuff from the past. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't, but when Ai Weiwei does his work, he'll take, like, some old Chinese chairs and chop them up and, like, recreate something incredible with it. And, and so he does use the past. But That's uh, the cliched not, archetype process. And yeah. so they do it with a tactile, appropriate receptive sensibility, and we've only got a visual and kinetic, older mode. Mm -hmm. I just want to introduce myself. Uh, I'm here. It's Pipple. Okay, thanks for showing up. So, Scott... What you what you show, and I haven't seen everything you've sent out, but you find some pretty interesting stuff. What do you think those people would think of what if they went over to China? I get I get feedback from a, a lot of my Chinese friends about it, and they say that it's very uh, in, inspiring. Uh, the kind of thing that I send out on high cybernauts. And by the way, uh, I, I understand that Andrew is going to be posting some of my anti-blog blog, blog uh, uh, with, with you guys, so uh, you can all have a look at it. Oh, that's great. Um, hey, Bipolar, I think it's you. Put your mute on, whoever's got a mute problem. Oh, sorry. I'm going to be actually on my mic, so I'll just try and mute it. <laughs> okay, so... so um, so is Mary still here, Mary McLuhan? What, what do you, they're talking about technological and artistic developments. What do you see in your project that relates to that or doesn't? Or you still think go to Finland, go to Spain? Um, well, I think the artistic part of what I'm doing is, or what we are doing, um, is... Uh, changing um, the structure of education. Yeah. That's called, you know, um, not just architectural, but it's, it's environmental, too, to engage our... You're saying what we are doing. Who's the we that you're referring to? Uh, um, the partners, the board, a lot of people uh, and everywhere. Um, uh, they're finding out that things aren't working, like standardized testing. Um, uh, the classroom is too boring for students. Well, that's that's what David is saying. The linear heritage is not relevant anymore. Right. I'd, I'd like to say and something. I'd like to come in for a minute here uh, because it's something I had in my notes which I forgot to mention. Uh, one of the impetuses, uh, one of, I think one of the things why Marshall got involved uh, with the city of classroom is that he was profoundly affected as I was profoundly affected as Tom Wolfe was profoundly affected 
by a book that came out like many years ago in the very early 70s, maybe the late 60s, a book called Learning from Las Vegas. And that book, I think, had a lot to do with the book uh, that Marshall came out with like 10 years later, uh, The City is Classroom. And that book was done by an architect firm uh, called, uh, it was uh, uh, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown came out with that book. Uh, they were on the David Rose, on the, uh, the Rose Show about five years ago when I was in New York. I saw them. And they said that the architecture of the 21st century is architecture of information. And that's where architecture was going to go in the 21st century. And uh, you can see that uh, in the lobby of the New York Times. You can see that around the Times Square. Uh, and I think that uh, it's highly connected. And, and I think that art will be the art of information also. I think the future of the 21st century is information. And, yeah, but uh, what a vague, vague term. What, everything is information. So what are they really trying to say? Well, what they're trying to say is that, uh, to get back to what Mary is, it's not in the, information is not just in the classroom. It's all over the place. And if you look at the city, the city is filled with information. And I think that's what the city of classroom is about. And that's certainly what, uh, what the book, uh, uh, this, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, Learning from Las Vegas was about. And I think that if people understand uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, that the, the world is about information and that, and that through media, uh, that information through great artists and architects and, and, uh, and people, uh, people are information too, uh, actually. Uh, yeah, McLuhan way. says that in his Playboy interview. Robert yeah, Venturi one of the things is the that happened, and one of the things that uh, that show one of the greatness of the great things about that show that I did, the environmental and communications looked at Los Angeles, was it had a theme, and that theme came from a, a, a Aspen Design Conference in 1972 that I went to, uh, where Louis Kahn uh, showed up, and he gave a whole big lecture about a whole bunch of stuff dealing with architecture, but it ended up. He said, L.A. is truth, whether you like it or not. And that, that con that, those words, L.A. is truth, whether you like it or not, was the impetus for the whole work that I did of looking at Los Angeles. Because if, uh, and then I finally found out what he meant was is that his idea of truth was what people, what people think, that's truth. You know? and, so, um, and then you saw McLuhan understood that statement when you told it to him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and so... You know, it's it's not only art. Art is uh, art is information. You know, art is information. Well, what about using the word communication? Yeah, art is, uh, well, that, that's part of it. You know, and I, I'm not a linguist, and I and I'm not so great with words. I, I somehow I latch on to some words, and I, it means something to me in a kind of an abstract way. If Marshall was here, he would. I don't know. You're a really good exponent of Marshall, and and as well as anybody these days, and. Uh, but if Marshall was here, he would make this conversation very clear. I cannot. <laughs> right. Here's it. Don Thiel pointed out that Marshall dropped the word communication for the name for the seminars in, uh, in 53 at the University of Toronto and went with the word media. And then the word communication took over in the 90s and 2000s, and he wondered whether McLuhan missed the boat by uh, not using the word communication uh, in terms of making some kind of acceptable response. Uh, but... Um, why? What does communication mean to us as opposed to information? What are these words? What, which is broader? Are they exactly the same? 
communication oh, is about an um, an interface, whereas information is just def default accumulated. Okay, yeah, in the literate world, that's, the, that's information in the literate world, but not in the ongoing Twitter world where you make up stuff. That's information. Information sounds like it must be more pure, which would interest me more. Communication uh, can, is more controlled. I see. Um, McLuhan used to say control. over and over again that if uh, something hasn't transformed something else, that nothing has been communicated. So communication is a transformational uh, interface. Yes, whereas information might be transportation, the Shannon Weaver that's model. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a very good way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah, information is – so now Venturi was the guy whose essay coined the term postmodern, or they, they leaped from his essay. I don't know if it was in the Las Vegas book, but he was the guy who um, – who laid out the aesthetic of postmodernism that the... Not true, uh, not, true not true. Actually, I worked with a guy uh, who, uh, who, who, who did that. It was, uh, it was a book called uh, uh, The Language of Postmodern Architecture, and it was written by Charles Jenks, and he was a professor... No, you're right. Now, that's, uh, that name sounds familiar, but Venturi was part of it. Coker writes about Venturi. It, what's interesting to me is that McClune was aware of the postmodern books before anybody else. Or yeah, I, I, I helped. Well, I also worked with him on that because I worked with Charles Jenks. I helped him develop the concept of, of postmodern, the language of postmodern, and he did that in Los Angeles. He knew nothing about L.A. and nothing about postmodern until he came to L.A., and it was my job as a student there, as a graduate student, to teach him about Los Angeles, and that's when he coined the phrase, uh, uh, the phrase of postmodern architecture, it was certainly picked up by a very early work by Venturi Roach, as well as uh, by uh, Charles Moore, who did the Piazza d'Italia in New Orleans, very postmodern. And postmodern, unfortunately, I think was, uh, he came into it a, a little bit early, and it's a kind of a slightly distorted, postmodern should mean a lot more than it actually did. He was taking some old forms and making something new out of old forms, which was actually different from the linear. Up to that time, architecture was totally linear, and then that was a break with the linear. And but it was a kind of a short-lived uh, movement, the, the postmodern movement. What do you think of the word paramodern? What you see being done in China is that they have, they don't get rid of their past, they don't get rid of the modern or the postmodern. They juxtapose them parallel as parallel worlds almost. Well, what I, you know, that, that could be true, but the way I describe what's happening in China is, you know, what's always been a, a, a word for architecture, a certain kind of architecture, was, is kind of like eclectic architecture, where usually the coming together of two different uh, uh, forms or two different styles. Uh, but what's happening in China, because they have no understanding of the linear past of architecture, but are just so easily influenced by this and that, is that the, the, the interesting thing that happens in China right now on a larger scale, when you look at the whole, is a kind of an eclectic architecture to the nth degree. I mean, it's not just two styles coming together. It's hundreds of styles. Yeah, I call that paramodern. Okay. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's, it's all simultaneous now. We have access to all periods of whatever, of experience and media, exactly. and they're all juxtaposed against each other like a page of Finnegan's Wake. Now, the Chinese have to deal with it. Americans don't give a shit because they're not doing anything. There's very little right. things built in America. There's things being built every day in China. So they have to deal with it constantly and, and are dealing with it in a, a yeah. variety. Of the, McLuhan said that, you know, these are the, he was trying to talk to the guys in the hot seat. 
You know, the China's in the hot seat because they're in charge. They got to know what they're doing. Yeah, they're doing things. <laughs> uh, I'd like to say something regarding um, uh, what uh, Wilfred Watson and Marsha McLuhan both uh, called postality consciousness or postality uh, uh, thought. And uh, they, uh, used, they, they were already thinking about that when they were looking at from uh, cliché to archetype. Uh, and uh, that was a term that they bandied about. And partly it was a response to the idea of apocalypse culture and uh, that, that sort of thing. So, so uh, the idea of post-anything, I think, was, was part of the zeitgeist of that period. Um, and they I see that as rearview mirror, to call something right. post. They, they don't know the tetrad. They don't know the retrieval factor. They don't that's know right. the flip point. So that, that's... Yeah, the tetradic consciousness would look at anything that thinks something's post is not appropriate. It, it's too limited. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good comment, yeah. And so that's why Don Seale's term paramodern, which he formed in 1971 in Montreal, is an interesting Canadian aspect of the whole jargon world of slogans. You're describing paramodern, but Marshall then put a pattern, a law to it with the tetrad. He actually saw a law within that chaos. Right, <laughs> the tetrad. Yeah, and and uh, Eric there too. Um, yes, and yeah, Barry Nevitt. Barry Nevitt yeah. says that he formed the tetrad idea before Eric came back to the center. Yeah. So even well, the origins of it are quibbled over. The tetrad idea works into the two figures and two grounds of the analogy and the metaphor, and so it's really a a, a very old concept working all the way through. Um, and you were there when that, you were there in the 72, 73, 74, when it happened. What do you recall? I was there in 74, yeah. That's when they announced it in the, the technology magazine in January 73, January 74. They did, he and Barry did a big essay. And yeah. that's well, where they McLean presented it. used to lecture on it regularly. Uh, it was part of uh, his everyday conversation. But do you see how the tetrad could apply to making temporary patterns of stability for the chaos you were describing and the social autism you were describing last week? Uh, I'd have to really look at that and a lot more carefully. My own idea, uh, my definitions and descriptions for social autism uh, change from, from one day to the next. Uh, right. Today, well, that's example, tetradic. <laughs> the yeah, ground changes right. so much yeah. that you have to shift where the positioning of your definition you have up to that point. Yeah. So that's what but David's saying. This is the way the Chinese, at least the manager level or the creative level, have to live every day. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Novak calls uh, trans architecture. Uh, he defines trans architecture as being the intersection of information in the form of algorithms in the material world and in terms of uh, robotic prototypes. Would it be better to put the word communication in that sentence? I, I, I'm not sure, but he would think of this as uh, continually repeating and developing. He uh, thought that liquid architecture was a symphony of space. This is cyber architecture, uh, but it's a symphony that, uh, that continues to develop, but, but without repeating. 
And um, so if architecture is an extension of our, our bodies and our shelter and uh, something of uh, our fragile self, then liquid architecture is uh, that self in the act of becoming its own changing shelter. Uh, so he saw uh, cyberspace or he sees cyberspace as a kind of sheltering. Okay, now David talks about nature as the larger world. He does not see virtual space as subsuming nature, right, David? You see the landscape and geography uh, has to relate to, adapt to media dynamics that change the human population, but you see a big ground in nature itself. Is that right, David? Right. Nature is absolutely unbelievably important, but one of the things that I'm thinking about uh, listening to you guys just talking right now is that what makes uh, China a little bit different right now and what I've always tried to achieve in my life, uh, since I uh, went to college, I wanted to be a Renaissance man. And, uh, what, and why there's a Renaissance going on in China right now, and why there hasn't been one in four or 500 years, uh, particularly in America in the last, uh, most of the last 150 years during its uh, big expansion and its growth, is that it was based on specialists. Everybody did their special things. Well, the greatness of the Renaissance time were not specialists. Uh, people like Leonardo, he was sort of not particularly a painter. I don't think he ever finished a painting in his life. As a matter of fact, uh, even the Mona Lisa, he said, wasn't finished. Uh, never gave it to the client because he said it was never finished. And he only did a few paintings in his life. He was a thinker. He was a mathematician. He was a military. He was so many things. And that's what's happened in China. And the greatness of, uh, of, uh, of Ai Weiwei, who's probably the greatest artist in China right now, is the greatness of his not a specialist. He was the first great architect in China, and artist, and thinker, and poet, and, and uh, as from his father. And that, uh, so what's happened in China is that there's a kind of a mixture of things where there's not just architects and artists and, or, or poets or something like that. It's all, the, the, and the, the reason they're going to the future, because the future, the great future, is a, not a future of where specialists are doing things. And, and uh you know, if you look oh. at the people that are really doing great things in this country, you know, I mean, uh, Steve Jobs, what's, what's, he, what's he a specialist at? Uh, is it business or, or invention or, 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 or what, 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 let's talk about him. What is he? Well, he makes jobs for people. <laughs> That's why his name is Jobs. No, no. Yeah. I mean, the greatness, of, the great things that are happening are being done by not specialists anymore. People that are integrated into uh, into the arts, into into many different things at the same time, and uh, as I think Steve Jobs is, and and uh, and I think you see him as not specialist. He's, I don't think he is a specialist. Right. Well, McLuhan's term for a, a non-specialist society was tactility or a tactile culture. And he said the Balinese had no art; they do everything as well as they can. Are the Chinese better able to adapt to the tactile proprioceptive possibilities or even happy possibilities of our time because of their cultural bias? Um, you know, I think that, uh, that maybe, if anything, it's uh, is that they are is a kind of an, a non-bias. Uh, that yeah, that's tactility. doesn't identify with any particular sense. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a non-bias, and, and it's just that they're kind of, uh, look into the future, and they're not—they're not, not even knowing exactly what the future is anymore. And, and just That's right. They're not into matching. McLuhan and Take Today quotes some 
Ruth Benedict or people talking about early encounters with Chinese and uh, when a Chinese person back then, 80 years ago, said yes or no, they were nodding their head, but they didn't necessarily agree with you. If they said yes, it didn't mean the content, semantic content may not be included in what their gesture is in response. That's a tactile detachment. I don't know, Scott, you uh, reinforce or extend what I'm saying. Well, I, I just think that the Chinese are more analogical thinkers. Their language is uh, uh, embodied resonation, uh, uh, and all of their script uh, is all their characters are analogical figures. And, now, is there uh, different so kinds of analogical mirrors, or is that saying oh, that they I'm are sure tactile? There are, are many, many different kinds of cognitive analogs. Uh, but um, uh, in other, but my point is that they are uh, not specialists uh, by virtue of uh, their entire culture, and uh, and I think that McLuhan might 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 agree with that. Yeah, if he, if he says the medium is a message, and movies come in, so a kinetic industrial culture like America, it becomes the American century, you know, mid sixty seven years ago. Now you have a supremely excessively tactile global theater or even a virtual tactile space, then the most tactile culture gets favored. It's raised up. So on a broad level, Chinese, the China is successful by the historical happenstance. It resonates with the tactile global theater medium. Yeah. Yeah. And you're watching has, spastic uh, kinetic visual America. It just can't, can't do it. It, it, it also has a real hive mentality and uh, work procedure so that uh, if a group is involved with doing uh, a particular procedure, uh, not just one person is in charge, it's whoever is, is the very best at, at doing uh, one aspect of a project who does it. And uh, so they, they, they... They're in charge for that moment. That's right. And he, McLuhan, used to quote Carpenter describing you know, tribal cultures doing that. Whoever was the best fisherman in, in the afternoon, he was in charge for that activity. Yeah. You I, say I China, China is civilized but maintains that. David, do you see that, David, at higher levels of organization? Uh, yeah. You know what? I've got to say one other thing um, that's happening in China. It's quite amazing, and it doesn't happen here so much anymore. It used to at one point, but we've forgotten it. Um, and that is uh, when I was uh, giving lectures in China, uh, they were very interested on sustainability because they began to realize that they're going to become big and fantastic, and, and they're not so dumb that they don't think that they, like, they need to sustain it. So they were talking about sustainability, and I was there the last couple of years kind of helping them along with their thoughts of uh, sustainability. And... Um, and how to achieve that. And um, uh, the, uh, the one day, the day after the, the, the destruction of the world coming together in Copenhagen about a year and a half ago, uh, where the world tried to come together to make the world sustainable. I mean, almost every country and every president was there. And uh, they try, and China and the United States played the two most important roles. And, uh, and there was a collapse. And then nothing came out of Copenhagen. And the reason, and anyway, they, they invited, like, uh, there was something called the, uh, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, Development uh, Institute, CDI. And they, gave, they opened up their, their whole place to the greatest thinkers in, in the country. They came down the next day to Shenzhen. And, to the, and they, they invited uh, 11 of the greatest thinkers uh, to figure out what, what, what actually happened in, in, in Copenhagen and what went wrong. 
with the future of the sustainable planet. And uh, everybody was there. There was even someone who spoke in Chinese uh, from Greenpeace. I mean, <laughs> everybody was there from every level. And what came out of it for me was that uh, the destruction of the process uh, was that in was that in in Copenhagen they were trying to come up with a solution from the top down. I mean, it was the great forces, uh, a little bit of Europe, uh, uh, China. The, the great United thinkers. They're bringing the great experts. We're trying to force a solution to the world. Well, yeah. the way the, the, the problems of the great problems and success of the future of the world is not decided from the top down because the top is screwed up. It must be almost equal portions of top down and bottom up, which right. means Africa was at the bottom of the planet. And, you know, we're now talking about a planetary global ecology. And anybody knows anything about ecology or any kind of a system, uh, a, a closed system, which the whole global, the whole world now is a closed system, is that if there's one weak link to the system, it's screwed up. It doesn't work. And Africa was that weak link. So Africa stopped the progress of the, of the world because no one was listening to the people at the bottom. And what has happened, I think, now in China is that, they, is that they, they've set up a government, partially because it used to be communistic, the bottom was allowed to come up. And, and you go into any town in China right now, any city, any town, and you see these little garages, the whole first floor of China, are these little garages where people start these little businesses and where they live out of these little things, and they're allowing the bottom to come up. And that's the great strength of China right now, and that's why it survived uh, the last big problems uh, three years ago, because they have a bottom now. They have a vibrant bottom, a big vibrant bottom. And this is the strength of, of China. Of course, there's a lot top-down, but there's a lot bottom-up. That's why you have thousands and thousands of great artists. And, 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 and also, they're using materials, bottom-up materials. I mean, I've spent the last two and a half years in China working with bamboo, which is an incredible uh, ecological and sustainable material, where they're now taken very seriously, and the government's taken very seriously, the concept of this grass root, literally, uh, as being part of the future of China, not just glass and steel. And so... The answer to the question is that the strength of China is, 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 has been the willingness for many years now of letting the bottom come, uh, letting the bottom have something to say and something to do, as well as just the top. Does that make Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's uh, the code McLuhan used all through his writing: eye versus ear. Top down is eye, vertical. Ear is horizontal. Now the crisis for both eye, top down, and bottom up, for the old communist bottom up is the tactile proprioceptive extension into virtual space that creates global autism. That's why things break down. Nobody's talking about how the eye-ear dialectics. So you're celebrating ear values there, and China's on top of it, but China's a forever perpetual crisis because its own tactile background can't handle the virtual reality that Scott lays out. That's the reason there's chaos. So the bottom-up thing, Marshall said... 19th century hardware communism. 20th century is software communism. Common word communism. Another word for that is tribal. The point is the communists, the truly communist countries, are better adapted for the uh, 21st century, but they're not bureaucratically top-down communists. They're culturally, sensorially communists. But even that tribal ear dynamic cannot meet the situation where the crisis or the challenge by post-tactility where we're at now. It's just the Chinese being the best tactile culture, they, let, they can keep up with the challenge better than anybody else. It doesn't mean they're in a state of poise about it. What do you think of that, Scott? 
Um, yeah, I, I'm just trying to figure out the tipping point or the transition phase or what's going to happen on a, a, a global uh, level. Uh, that's what was going through my mind as you were talking, but it was a, a good, uh, a good uh, description of the Venn diagram of what's going on east and yeah. west. The tipping point is the tetrad, the flip point in the tetrad, but the machines are doing it themselves. The actual virtual information environments are going through tipping points. And it's very hard for the, the analogical mind to even get an approach on that. Yeah, that's what I've been thinking about all day. I've been thinking uh, in terms of um, uh, when uh, computers, uh, AI computers and all the rest have uh, crashes. Uh, it, it, when when they hit a point of criti criticality where they need so many different uh, software uh, laws and rules and regulations that it goes infinite and the computer can't uh, can no longer handle it, uh, and uh, that is actually something that the human being, as uh, organic computers, able to do. We actually work uh, it, it, with transition phases all of the time. Uh, we're we're used to work with a finite and the infinite. Uh, in an ongoing uh, everyday general way and uh, so uh, the the uh, coming together of the uh, computer uh, and uh, cyberspace and uh, the uh, organic individual in terms of uh, ecological uh, in inner outer transition points you know is is something that's really um, uh, making me think yeah and that's what David's David is in the middle of that dilemma. He's trying yeah, to preserve really analogical really, culture. Yeah. 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 And David, how, how, there. how? David Greenberg, I'm well, talking can about. I, uh, yeah, you, I know. Can I interject here with a question for Scott? Yes. Um, Scott, in your um, article that you sent me, uh, it was uh, Metaphors and Mirrors in Digital Performance. You detail a uh, an artistic performance that you suggest gets around this uh, problem of how to preserve uh, analogical thinking in a digital situation. Is there anything in the Chinese uh, cultural, uh, what would you call it, uh, makeup that gives them uh, an equivalent like a national I think that's a really pertinent, uh, perspicacious uh, kind of, of question. Unfortunately, not everybody's read my article. Uh, but uh, the point is, is that I think that to a certain degree, the Chinese mentality uh, being much more analogical and much more embodied in terms of its cognitive activities is actually uh, better able to withstand um, the virtual colonization and distortions. Um, at least I'd like to think that. Right now, I'm 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 really crazy about the about the the Chinese, and I want to give them every advantage I can, and mm. not, not from from a humanist point of view. You're on the same page as David about that. Speaking about my page, I forgot to tell you something really important that I forgot to, to say before. When I was uh, when I'm in China, and I look back at the West, and I can be anywhere in rural China. Or in uh, because it's very similar in some ways, and as well as urban China. And when you look at the West, not only is the West, America and Europe, uh, you know, just trying to hold on to the past, but when you look at the West, my feeling is, well, I never grew up myself. I'm 60 something and never grew up. When I look at the West, it's a whole bunch of grown-ups in Europe and in America and in China. <coughs> everybody's like a little kid. The way they look <laughs> at the world is like a little kid looks at the world. Everything is new. Everything is like amazing everything is in the future 
you know, little kids don't think about the past. They have no past. You know, they're not. It's a, so what's really the excitement in China, and what makes it so creative, is that everybody's like a little kid. And someone said before, you know, who was it? Marshall said, when you're three years old, it's over. Or whatever, four years old. Grade well, three. No, one, but no one's gotten beyond, No one in China is over. Is, is older than two and a half. Now listen to this. Marshall said many times in the late 60s, early 70s, that you cannot be emotionally more than a four-year-old in our global culture. So China is good at being immature emotionally because that's the environment we're in. They're all like little kids. Their sense of humor, their everything, their their demeanor, the way they dress. I mean, they they don't. But anthropologists find tribal people like that, Aboriginal peoples. It's part of a way back preliterate sensibility. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. It's very important. I don't know how to, how, to, how to put it in the right words. Well, I'm showing, I'm, I'm putting paralleling what you're saying with how McLuhan saw yeah. the world is, can only be four-year-old, a four-year-old emotionally. And they're great at three, crazy. and then they're kind of dead, and then they're in crisis. So they're four-year-olds and, and irresponsible or immature or delighted. That aspect, it's interesting that China has a culture like that, so they resonate with the mandate McLuhan's saying. You can only be four years old. China's good at it. And that's one reason why most of the Chinese are not even political, you know, because there were four-year-olds that gave a shit about politics. (laughs) That's right. Most Chinese are not political at all. You don't even talk about politics in China. They don't even recognize the government. Right. They're just just, that they're there. I mean, they're happy the government's uh, helping people eat and make money, but, you know, most Chinese don't even care. There are a few people that do you know, thinking like old people, you know, things should be like this, things should be like that. Well, they put on the industry. Do you see that uh, McLean's or Canadian Business Week magazine article about a month ago saying most of those big cities in China have empty apartment buildings because the peasants won't leave their little towns. They're too social. They're not going to live in an anonymous apartment building. And a lot of the Chinese economy is, in industrial terms, Western terms, is empty and virtual. Yeah, they're, they're Doesn't, and, Wait a second. They're empty for that's, – that's economic reasons. I've seen whole swaths of cities – with total empty high-rises. China is becoming rich. And the yeah, what's it mean to say it's for economic reasons? I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, if you have money in China, which a lot of people now have money in China, what do you do with your money? I mean, there's, uh, you don't put it in a bank to, to make more money because the, you know, the interest rate is like very small. What they do is all those empty apartment high-rise buildings all over China are empty because these are high-rise uh, safety deposit boxes with uh, about uh, 400 uh, square meters of space in each one. What they're doing is they're putting their money, the Chinese are putting their money into these high-rise safety deposit boxes. Instead of putting the bank, they put it into an empty, gigantic space. And that's why that, that's their investment for the future. It's an economic Do you mean the, the apartment is the investment, or they put their money in a vault in the apartment? The, the, the apartment is the vault. Right. <laughs> it's the safety deposit box. It's a virtual box, and, and right. not a virtual so, box. It is a real box. And it's well, that's the, the East going West, McLuhan's pattern. They put it into hard hardware because they're a more software, tactile, uh, communicating culture, right. proprioceptive. So and so, but, but that crisis of post-tactility forces them to think that hardware is secure. And so they build all these uh, hardware cities as a novelty for them. Right. The, what do you make of that, Scott? Um, well, I, I think it's brilliant, and I'm glad that David told me that because I've heard uh, completely different uh, interpretations of that, and that's uh, uh, a, a much more, uh, for want of another word, progressive 
Uh, That's right. It's probably not mentioned in, in that. I didn't read the whole Business Week article, but uh, I bet you it's not in there. They didn't know David's stuff. They didn't know David's facts. So what uh, is this? Week, be- anybody getting that beeping? Anybody know what that is? Yeah, it might be my uh, my telephone here. Uh, I might be running out of juice. Um, so if oh, but carry on. That, oh. No, it's all right. We don't. Now we know what it is. We're okay. Do you have another telephone? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I do. I'll, I'll see if I can. I can use it. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, but so finish, your try, try finish, your um, well, finish your sentence. Finish your point. Or you can finish your point. Yeah. This this weekend, I had a, a long conversation with the woman who is in charge with determining all of the standards for testing regarding gifting, gifted students and learning disability students in uh, the Toronto School Board. And she says uh, that over the years, uh, they keep on having to raise the bar uh, regarding uh, what those standards are. So it would appear on standardized testing that uh, children are, or students are actually becoming more intelligent. But I, what I pointed out to her is that they're also becoming more stressed. And the more stressed that you are, uh, the more that you will develop um, supposed intellectual capacities. And, uh, and so this is uh, apropos uh, McCoon's idea of, of uh, gray at three. And, um, uh, you mean and they get frustrated? Do they get, he said frustration. Well, well, we find all in the West here that um, uh, people are uh, maturating much more rapidly uh, than they did in the past. And uh, one of the reasons for it is because of the high level of stress. Right, the, the performance past. thing. And so my point was just simply that in China that, uh, that, that there's, there isn't that same stress level and that there's much more play. Uh, yeah. I find that the young people here uh, in North America uh, tend to play with telecommunications but not with one another, whereas uh, when I was in China, I found that the students were, there was a lot more rapport and, uh, and activity uh, amongst them, uh, so they were much more playful and much more relaxed. So that was my point. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah, Won't David see that? With eating and drinking and playing and talking, and it's uh, every uh, the a more integrated lives. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go and try my other phone. So I'll be okay. back in a minute. Bye bye. Great. Is there anybody we haven't heard from who would like to speak, or is Mary still here and would like to say something? Well, um, as you know, I uh, uh, I mentioned standardized testing. Yes. And so he brought it up. But I'm in China right now on my computer. Yeah. And it, it says, and I went into translation into English, um, Team Revolution and Learning Revu- Revolution in China, a review of Marshall McLuhan's media concept. Yeah. It's ever so brief. It just says, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it. I just haven't gotten into it. Um, McLuhan's concept of medium is unique in that it has broadcast in connotation. He advanced the tetrad law laws of medium. One, the new medium enhances or intensifies some aspects of man. Two, a new medium uses or replaces an old medium. Three, an old medium or cliche can turn into a prototype. Four, 
overheated medium will reverse into its opposite. History has seen <clears throat> has seen it here. Major medium revolutions, the alphabet printing and electronics. That's all. What so this was ri- written recently? Um, 2005, no. Um, 2008. And what's the source? Uh, what Chinese source? Um, I went in, I just put in McLuhan and China, Marshall McLuhan and China. Yeah, you had to come to a website. Parts. What's the website? Um, uh, it's Len, can't read because I lost my glasses. Um, HTTP slash slash Ian dot CNKI dot com dot CN. Mary, could you repeat what you just read about the medium? The Tetrad outline. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that China mentioned the Tetrad. Yeah. Well, what are they reviewing a book, or is it someone who uh, attended a McLuhan? Well, if you go into, see, whenever I go into a country, you know, I put in, like, Australia and Marshall McLuhan, then I find out what's going on at universities and yeah. of education. So I did that in China. And, like, when I did it in Tokyo about four or five months ago, I put Marshall McLuhan in Tokyo, and it turns out that the, uh, at the university there, the main one, they have a separate class just on Marshall McLuhan. And then in the Tokyo newspaper, call it, there was a huge article on Dad. So, you, you know, you find out a lot by doing that. Yeah. And McLuhan, I mean, if you put Einstein in or something like that, I don't know if you'd find as many. Well, all right. So, for instance, put in Marshall McLuhan, if you have your computer. Put in Marshall McLuhan and... Or put in Marshall McLuhan in China. Why don't you put in, David, just put in Marshall McLuhan in China. So th- here we are exploring. We're doing your, the Sidious Classroom right here. <laughs> You're the teacher for a few minutes, Mary. Let's not call it Sidious Classroom because, you know, the copyright bullshit. We'll call it w- the world as classroom. That's much more appropriate. I'm wanting to know the tetrad. Because oh, yeah, that, that's, Tina was asking about the tetrad. Because in the classroom... Um, the kids from uh, Japan and uh, China are talking to the kids sitting there, and the I mean it's global. Um, so it's it's the world is classroom. So you're saying put in Marshall McLuhan, not just McLuhan, but Marshall McLuhan China, and Marshall McLuhan and China. Oh, and China. It's by uh, it's at the Journal of uh, is it Shenzhen University um, by He Dao Kuan in 2000. McLuhan in China. If that's uh, what I think Mary's pointing to. Wait, wait. You're you're calling the article McLuhan in China? No. Well, that's the one I've... Okay, Mary. Are you saying Marshall McLuhan A N D China? Marsha McLuhan and China. Yeah. A A N D, not I N. But but oh. and A N D. A N D. Well, first, um, what do you get, uh, Andrew? Um, I'm looking at uh, an article called uh, McLuhan in China by He Dao Quan in the College of Arts at, uh, at Shenzhen University, 
Um, this survey combines personal research and abundant data on McLuhan by Chinese academics. Um, and it's uh, got a, a full-blown article there, so it's a, a full literature review of uh, all of the Chinese academics on McLuhan. Well, I put McLuhan in China there. Google it. What's the extra word to get what you're looking at? Because I'm not getting it. I just typed McLuhan in China, and it came up as, as a third entry. Oh, by He Del Quan, right. Yeah, I see. Yep. Journal of Chinton. So and what's the point of this? May I say something? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, um, I'm... I'm I'm listening to you guys paint the invisible about the sensibilities of uh, regional opinions on Marshall McLuhan, in this, case, <laughs> in this case China, and I just wanted to get a couple things out. Um, the modern, paramodern, that seems to be the issue of uh, the 21st century, which is, uh, again, descent into the maelstrom, which is doing two things at once, uh, in this case the eye and the ear, the perpendicular points of the uh, vertical and horizontal. And um, it made me think of how in Israel, you know, a cab driver might be a general in the army and his passenger might be a millionaire, but a corporal. And they have this sort of, um, you know, dualistic, uh, dualistic inter inter understanding with each other and there's complete respect and the society can function. And um, that, I'll leave that one. And then the other thing was that, uh, again, coming back to Napster, um, you would, let's say you wanted a song called uh, Sustainable Communication in the 22nd Century, but let's say there was 41 other people that wanted it too, and you were the 42nd, you'd have to wait. But if you use the same approach and you wanted that song using BitTorrent, you could use the entire world, and let's say there was um, 500 other people who at that moment wanted that song, you would get it out of order faster with more people wanting it than you would if, let's say, you were in America in 1920 and just hoped that if you just stuck by your guns and persisted that you too could make something for yourself um, and make it to the top, so to speak. All right. I hope I've injected it with some life, and I'll see you guys later. Okay. Now, that's a good point. Um, did Scott Taylor come back? Yeah, I'm back on. Thanks. Okay, great. What, this anecdote about the chaos is the way you get somewhere. Is that what he was just saying? Did you follow the Napster point he was making? Are you talking to me? Yes, Scott. Or everybody in general. Uh, no, I'm you... not exactly certain what his point was. I'm sorry. Well, it was like the more people were looking for something or on Napster, you could get it faster if more and more people were looking for it than the old way of waiting in line until it was your turn. You actually want a, cr a crowd rioting. <laughs> that, so that's kind of morphic exponents on the cyber spatial yeah. uh, horizon. Perhaps, perhaps the real point, Bob, was uh, we were retreating into uh, Google and fishing around with trying to find a specific document that may or may not be relevant to something. Um, we should have just possibly let uh, Mary speak and, uh, and continue with the story. Okay, so carry on, Mary. With your McLuhan in China. Oh well, no, it's okay. Um, I just put in Marsh McLuhan, China and architecture. That was fascinating. Um, okay, Mary, since yeah, you're good at this, put in David. Einstein and China and see if you get as much. Is David there still? Yeah. Yes. David, I want to ask you: Is it Michael in Toronto? 
Uh, I, mean, I don't know if you know Jane Jacobs' work or not. Uh, I don't know much about it, but two things about the, I want to find out about design of cities. So she talked about, like, strong neighborhoods, in which Toronto has them. Uh, and then we, we have up here a guy named Richard Florida, who talks about kind of, I guess, uh, clusters of uh, intellectual activity needed to make cities grow. So um, does this work? Is this how it's working in China? Hey, okay, David, do you know Jane Jacobs' work? Um, the name's familiar. I, I forget. So. Okay, you know so what? she's I'm not prominent. Crazy. I just tried to download some, one of those things uh, from China, and my computer got infected. <laughs> I tried to do it, and I'm kind of dealing with a computer infection right now. Uh, Jane Jacobs, it sounds very familiar, but I, I can't remember exactly why. And then Richard Florida. You know the name Richard Florida? Uh, no. Okay, so Michael, refine your question. Well, no, basically, all I'm trying to get at here is uh, Jane Jacobs is sort of saying you can't have these, uh, like, gray cities all uh, monotonous. You have to have, like, dynamic neighborhoods that can, uh, like, build their own sustainability. So. Like I agree with what's that. going on, on the east side of the city may not be relevant to me on the west side of the city. Well, each you have to take uh, what, uh, for sustainability. Uh, what I was doing in China was a program of making segments uh, sustainable on their own uh, because you can't deal with the whole city anymore. You have to go uh, segment by segment to make it uh, sustainable. So that would be right. And it also, um, also Paulo Solari was right about having a whole individual sustainable small cities and. And so that definitely is true. And when you're dealing with a big old city, uh, uh, you have to build up. You have to deal with the segments of it at a time and making that sustainable, uh, its own power system, its own people living and working within, you know, a very small area. Uh, megastructures was what um, uh, what he was into. You can create megastructures within cities, uh, uh, both modified uh, ones as well as new ones. And uh, can I ask someone a question? I, I've just, uh, you know, this is a technical question. I'm trying to deal with this infection, and it says um, there's a program that it suggests me to use, like an anti-spy setup. Uh, to that's try a to spy. That's that's spam. Don't don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. You should okay. go off the internet uh, to, uh, and go to simplest way is probably to um, well your your program your spyware might pick it up. But whatever you do, don't don't click on that. Yeah, I think I... So if you click on that, that will propagate through your computer. Okay, so what can I do to stop it? I think I clicked on it by accident. Well, if you clicked on it, uh, <laughs> you, you, you may have to... Uh, uh, I don't know. You, you may need an expert for that. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm. But the, the only other thing is to... Um, like what I did and I had it is go into uh, I found it by looking at uh, like rec uh, like the most recent additions on my uh, in the file system so what what happened this week or today yeah and then you go in there you'll find you'll find the culprit sitting there yeah so so what we have here the government part of China that's competing with Americans they see the fad of McLuhan coming up and they stick viruses in there <laughs> to nail the Westerners computer there could be a military aspect of the McLuhan retrieval. Ship landscape chaos. Yeah, or warfare, or yeah. uh, decentralized warfare. What's that phrase? Collision of communication and information. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's eye ear. Yeah, more likely, more likely, Bob. It's uh, some American uh, spyware company that's made a deal with some hackers in China. <laughs> yeah, that's to, right. So that they can sell software to to Americans. <laughs> <laughs> but the eye ear dialectic that's riddled all through Marshall's book as an artistic formula. The ground of that was tactility. What Scott Taylor and myself and Croker pointing out is that the new ground is post-tactility. And post-tactility means the more recent tactile situation represented by China is figure. But the ground is uh, something that's not decipherable in nationalistic or cultural terms. So when you cite that example... Go ahead. Um, I've just got a, 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 another question for uh, a David Greenberg that I, I don't think has been addressed. Is, um, well, what about um, my question? What about my question? Yeah, no, I'm just sidelining your question. You've asked him. Yours was a statement, wasn't it? Yes, but the, no, no. McLuhan, he made all kinds of statements that left out the question mark. You know that. <laughs> the only time he revealed the question mark was in the Medium is a Massage book, where he said the Medium is the Massage, and he put a question mark after it. Hidden ground was the question. No, Carol is saying, let Andrew have it. But Andrew, it better relate to what I'm saying or I won't have it. <laughs> no, no, I, I might have to drop off soon. So, like, I really want okay, to... Okay, that's a good alibi. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's not actually true, but I'm going with it anyway. Um, the writing to Jacqueline uh, Turowit, I think that's how you say her name, uh, in the, I think it was the late 60s, McLuhan's... Uh, he, he outlines the global villages and illness, and he says that the cure for the illness is the creation of a global city as a centre for village margin. I was just wondering whether that topic ever came up uh, when McLuhan was talking with uh, David. It's, um, it's, re- it's immediately relevant to his um, to his project. Uh, wait a second. Uh, I kind of lost what you're asking. Can you say that one more? He's distracted. You're, you're distracted, Dave, by your, your little accident, your collision there. A little bit. Okay, Andrew, the global city idea, he first says in 1960 approximately in the letters, he says the new city would be like a traffic controller situation at the airport. He said we yeah, don't... I'm just wondering whether, whether he took that up directly with uh, David and whether David um, got to riff on that or develop that at all. Um. You know, I kind of do things uh, and think things kind of very intuitively. And um, when it comes, and I, I kind of glanced on it before when I talked about Ecoland and that uh, the city is also uh, somewhat affected by, particularly in China, you see, there's a very bad impact on the cities by people leaving uh, the rural agriculture areas because they're not that sustainable uh, financially and they come and they impact the cities. Of course, the cities need a certain amount of those people uh, for all their new work and workers. And, uh, you know, the more workers, the less expensive it is. And and so there's a lot of that stuff happening. Um, But there's something that I didn't totally understand, but I really worshipped. And it means a lot to me. And that was when he came up with the concept of the global village. So I look at the whole planet now as the global village. Are more important than I am in, in particularly eco-cities. And one of the things when I lecture on eco-cities, I say, listen, yeah, the, the, the city is also responsible for the area around it because if they don't take responsibility for um, hundreds of miles away and, and help uh, make the rural areas more sustainable, it will have a very bad impact on, on, on the cities. So they're not only responsible, but it's 
they'd be hesitant to do that. So I kind of look actually as a whole planet uh, somehow uh, encouraged by just those words that Marshall McLuhan once said, the global village. We are in the time of the global village uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's, a, it's a, a global economy, a global everything, a global ecology, but also what's helped, it, what's made that happen is a kind of a media that I suppose Marshall McLuhan did foresee but was not able to uh, verbalize because it hadn't happened within his lifetime. So does that, does that mean anything? Yeah, let me respond. The global, the global village term, Marshall said, happened in the radio era. In his last years, he was describing the global theater and something beyond that. The, the discussion or theme or argument potentially is between Scott talking about the virtual space or what I call the chip body as the new city, and you're saying there still is a terrestrial environment that is bigger than our media, though the media affects the communication about it. So how big is the Earth? You get someone like Croker and his gang, the Montreal School of Media Ecology, they see the Earth is swallowed up and very tiny compared to the virtual space. And the kids live that way, except for the Chinese. They seem to be the most balanced about it all. They still think they got it a geographical location to walk around on. So, David, you represent the, the school that believes there still is a big natural environment and media just fills it up and it's now local in a global village. Are you aware of the other view that this plant, the global village hasn't been here in 50, 60 years? So the global village doesn't mean anything to you right now. Yeah. Who mumbled there? So the, the Chinese don't know that mean? because they operate in um, this tactile environment of theirs. That's their background. They bring tactility to their to what they are, and they're up against a post-tactile culture. But because we always grab on the most recent uh, success story, we make that the figure and say they're in control. So we're saying China's in control because they're the best at being tactile. But they're in crisis because of the post-tactile thing that has swallowed up the world that Dave is trying to protect. Yep. Right. And I, I'm not That's saying that it has swallowed up. Go Is ahead. That why they appear to be as four-year-olds, um, happy and more relaxed and all of that, playing while well, they're engaged in their environment? Well, the um, American kids are playful and nutty and uh, that. They just have a competitive patina they put on when they go to school because they have to be individuals. Their ground is visual space and competitive billiard balls. They don't really, they can't do it anymore as Adam Agoyan says he saw in his own kids that we talked about back in many uh, Maui's ago. Um, the thing is, is that you take what the culture is, the individualist West versus the collective East, and show how both of them are in crisis. Mm-hmm. And so the Band-Aid is, oh, the Chinese are the best at being tactile. We'll give all our money to them and take our industries over there. Now, the Chinese being tactile don't care that we're doing that. But that still, as a culture, they're inside. If you believe that the meme is swallowing everybody, they've still got that issue. So I'm saying is David, uh, I'm not saying what I just said is true, but that is a school of thought that come out of McLuhanism. And then there's the ecological or Gaia school that thinks that nature... Um, is being affected by the global village, which is something created by radio and TV 60 years ago. 
So Mass David, is he aware of the other argument in relation to what he's for? It's a, a nice dynamic. In some senses, like if I've heard correctly, um, well, Scott's presented this idea that the uh, Chinese appear have the best uh, national cultural strategy to withstand, whereas um, David appears to be saying that there's their cultural strategy with their future orientation is actually going to give them uh, um, the capacity to actually run and actually conquer and continue into the digital age. So it's a, it's a really nice two sides of the coin. Right, and, and they're not going to run it with the top down, they're going to run it with the bottom up. Because they're tactile, they're neither top down or bottom up. They allow both have their play. And they tend to ignore the top down government in China. They don't resist, they don't get rid of it. So yeah, what you just said, Andrew, is what I'm saying. How do you talk through that? You just say it and it becomes a question that nobody can make a formula from. Yeah, well, no, that's, uh, that's totally it. It's, uh, system is just an uh, educational system of questions. Say it again? And there, and, and there comes in the new educational system that ought to... Um, yeah, and we don't need an educational system. Well, what Mary and them are trying to dismantle what people call education. That's all you can do in America. But the Chinese are going for They don't even bother educating anybody. They just have the wealth that everybody can join in. They don't have wealth. They don't measure it on the accounting books the way we do in the capitalist culture or a visually biased culture. Isn't that right, David? Say that last part one more time. I'm saying that. What did I say, Andrew? You're a pretty good translator. Yeah, no, you just said that the Chinese, effectively, uh, if I'm uh, paraphrasing you, uh, Walter, is that uh, the Chinese don't have the same visually uh, biased accounting systems that we have. They don't have the same uh, um, cultural reference points in uh, visual space. Yeah, now we've had Buzz Kosin on a few weeks ago. And he finds it, um, he has a bit different view. He emphasizes the conservative preserving state part of China. He still finds them interesting, but it's a bit boring. And that, that's the individual sensation's desire to have a voracious new diet of stuff to eat, which we get with our chip bodies. I don't know if the tribal cohesionness of the Chinese people, just like the Japanese were isolationists, if they are ready for the global village and for the chemical body. See, Wyndham Lewis says, American cosmic man. America is the future. America's multicultural, what is it? Melting pot dynamic is the model for the global village. Is that irrelevant now? That vision that McLuhan latched onto in 1948 by Wyndham Lewis. Is America in the end going to recover because it does have an actual more playful environment with uh, a more playful attitude to new technological environments? including the ability to be violent and go nuts with it. Hey, um, Bob? Yeah. Let other people talk, okay? Okay. Okay, other people, go ahead. <laughs> you know who says America come back and be the example and model for the global village? Yes, I have that thought uh, all the time. But we won't bring you-know-who in. So right, right, right. So is there anybody else who hasn't spoken? 
How many well, people are having there? No, hold it. Don't don't speak, Tina. Who's that? The male voice. Speak again. How many people are there here today? Can you tell? Supposedly 13. Uh-huh. So there's about six, seven people haven't spoken. Yeah, we tend to get that. <laughs> so anybody who hasn't probably, spoken... Uh, probably uh, mostly Chinese people listening. <laughs> so, Michael, you say some words. I mean, you, you're versed in McLuhanism. You input here. I, I, I thought I did, but... Um, uh, I don't know. I think in terms of the Wyndham Lewis thing, uh, I mean, in Canada here, which is where I am, I'm a Canadian here, we, we, we tend to think we, we are the model for the world with our multiculturalism. We call Toronto the most multicultural city in the world. Um, we didn't suffer through the 2008 uh, economic thing. Uh, Excuse so, me, I uh, thought that was California. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody thinks their place. Even the, the Iraqis believe Baghdad's where it's at and a model for the future. No, no the we've, we've actually got the good the model United here. United Nations like, anointed like, Toronto. What'd you say? The United Nations did anoint Toronto for that. Well, well Bucky Fuller said Toronto was uh, the best designed city in the 70s. When did the UN make their statement? Oh, this is uh, over the last few years. Well, Bruce Powell, a good McLuhanite, said in a lecture in Bologna two or three weeks ago that the reason there's been no terrorist action in Canada is that the Canadian government and intelligence services made a deal with all the terrorists that they could fund and raise money in Canada as long as they didn't bomb any part of Canada. Okay? So there's, quote, a hypocritical deal made by the government to make Canada look like a, a, a wonderful uh, get-along, uh, all-get-along situation, but there's this very corrupt such a deal made that infuriates other intelligence agencies who can't bust this, the terrorists in Canada. And Toronto, uh, Nelson Thal and his mania goes on about Toronto, has the majority of the intelligence services and terrorists walk around there and blowing young every day. <laughs> so what a wonderful place you have, Michael. I did have a, a person in the um, Canadian Forces uh, more or less tell me something similar to that. Yes, I was told that in, Munch, in Toronto in 1997 at the York Conference by an intelligence guy. He, uh, he told, I met him off campus by coincidence, and he was furious that local aldermen were d drug dealing, and he laid out the whole gun running thing that led to Al-Qaeda. He says right there in Toronto, and he, as a CSIS guy, couldn't get the politicians or whoever to do anything about it. So the peaceful, what did Marshall call Canada, the peaceful something, the peaceable kingdom? Isn't that the old phrase for Canada? By Mordecai Richard or somebody? The peaceable kingdom is a virtual front for a culture that the Canadians are the Chinese of the West. <laughs> but I go back and answer your question then. Well, yes, then the win the rules. No, no, hold it. Okay, Mary, what would you say? He said... Canada was the only place where he could live in a foxhole and not be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> like a terrorist. That sounds like a terrorist. Canada's <laughs> the only place I could live in a foxhole and not be bothered. That's perfect, Mary. Oh, okay. Now, there are how many uh, people on right now? Thirteen. If you, go, if you went out, Mary, and came back in, it would tell you. All right, then why don't we have a few other people speak then? Well, they tend to be silent. They're, they're, they're spies, lurkers. They're, they don't believe in words. <laughs> hey, Mary, it's probably Eric. 
Yeah. <laughs> Checking up on you, seeing what you're saying. Uh. So, so if Mary, we would like others to talk. I'm always screaming, screaming at other people to talk, but they won't. My screaming doesn't work. So I'm willing to have Michael. He's a nice, quiet talker. You speak, Michael. Tell us more about Toronto. Stop yelling so much. (laughs) That's normal here. That's normal. Go ahead. We're we're, we're operating under these. Speak. We're operating, uh, according to Scott, under this... uh, these, uh, with these technologies that promote uh, social autism, so it's natural that we've at least uh, half, if not more, of us here have got some form of aphasia. <laughs> you get that? Well, we Hi, Bob. Okay. It's Sasha. Hey, Sasha. You you want to talk some bit? Go ahead. Yeah, I'll speak. Actually, um, I've been listening to the conversation for a little while. And um, what I have been doing while I've been listening to this conversation is actually somewhat relevant, and I'm hoping that perhaps I can get some insight from you all. Um, If you all don't know, I'm an e-commerce designer, and I work for a very large um, online uh, soccer and rugby company. And currently, I'm trying to design our boots store. And what I'm wondering is how... What the the future environment, what you guys foresee the future environment to be, because as I'm laying this out um, and I'm looking at some of our competitors, I'm seeing um, two two major competitors anyways. I'm seeing two two direct channels. One of our competitors is pushing um, a brand selection, forcing a consumer to, to choose by brand. Um, and the other one is forcing a consumer to select by a fairly complex system of navigation. Um, and when you shop for, so- for soccer boots, believe me, there, we, there are hundreds. I mean, if, if, even shopping by style, by, you know, with, with Nike, for example, you've got firm ground boots, soft ground boots, and then all of these different brands that they force down on necks. So I'm, while I was doing this, I was trying to think about what the future will be, given this disorientation of many, many, many things going on on at the same time in, in the electronic environment. Um, and I'm, I, as I was doing it, I was thinking, perhaps what I need to do is to design this page as I would be using a phone. And I'm wondering what you, your, how, how you comment on that. Yeah, I would say that uh, soccer won't survive in the uh, in the digital era. It's um, definitely it's uh, it's auto tactile and it's um, it's going to be um, in remission. And why wouldn't it survive? Well, look well, at it's, I don't know. The, 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 the soccer seems to be uh, like propped up by um, uh, cultures that like to talk and like to touch. You know, it's the beautiful game, this, that, and the other thing. If we go into a post-tactile situation, then um, soccer is no longer a drama, which uh, is going to mine the everyday um, drama that the everyday people are engaged in. No, no, no. The, the rearview mirror is always the art form. It would mean that soccer will become more prominent because it's the closest to what we knew. Well, I don't think baseball is very it's tangible. It's no, no, that's gone. Done in the last uh, hmm. 10 years, soccer has become the biggest game going for children in this country, like this is taking over, which well, was yeah. never there up till about that's 10 years ago. Well, that's a very good point. My granddaughter, well, both of them, 
they they uh, uh, near Berkeley, California. They both take soccer. All of them take soccer. So uh, that's interesting. Why soccer? Soccer uh, is so important to all these grade school students. This is Sasha, this is David. I was thinking about what you guys are talking about right now. I suggest you don't think soccer. Uh, I suggest you don't think uh, even any particular sport. Uh, because what you're looking for, what I'm understanding, is the choice of a different kind of a system uh, to get people to to look at a certain sort of thing, right? Yeah, precisely. I mean, I'm okay, I'm really it's soccer because in, it doesn't make any difference if it's soccer or if it's baseball or if it's uh, or if no, it's, absolutely, absolutely. What I'm what I'm considering while I'm doing this is not necessarily the sport, but the the, the behavioral patterns of okay, okay, of I understand. Customer but, but and shoes that are, but shoes are a visual. Uh, a visual thing. Uh, they are visual, and yet we also have to compete with brands. And um, I, I, I understand, I understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what I'm saying is that forgetting about whether soccer is this or that, or any sport is this or that, or in the future, into the past. Um, and I have thought a lot about systems for uh, getting information out and choices for buying things. And uh, there are some fairly advanced websites uh, that are doing pretty well uh, in the world. Uh, for buying things, uh, sometimes like for one, I don't know if you've ever heard of Alibaba.com. Has anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, I know Alibaba. No, okay. Alibaba. For the people who haven't heard of Alibaba.com, is it sort? It's a Chinese system that's been around for maybe eight years, and it's a kind of a classified. It's like you want to buy anything in China, and China has a lot of things for sale. Uh, or you know, actually anything from anywhere in the world, but mostly it's Chinese stuff. If you want to buy anything in China, you just go to Alibaba.com, and it will sell you anything. And it has a certain kind of an organizational pattern to get you to what you want. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's the end of all things, but it's a very simple system for selling uh, products. Uh, what I don't think it's particularly good at, and what I would do is I'd follow, you know, so th there's other systems in the world like Alibaba.com for for buying things, for instance, there's the eBay system or whatever. But Alibaba.com is for usually products. It could be any product. It could be a, a rearview mirror, for instance, they'd sell you or whatever product or shoes. Uh, and uh, what I think that might be interesting for you to uh, – uh, this is a personal concept and, and how I see the future of sales in uh, – Well, Nike's made by China. Yeah, I know. Everything's made in China. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, what I, what I would what I'd start investigating and thinking about is developing some kind of system that's just totally visual, and where you're just clicking on a picture with no words, no brand name. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, some pictures of some shoes will have a brand name on it or a brand logo, but just a, a picture-oriented system to get people where you want them to go. Just pictures, no words. Because I think that the organization for things like what you want to do in the future will be picture-oriented. Uh, first of all, the one thing that was kind of gone over very uh, fastly and not really uh, understood by all of us earlier in the conversation, maybe before you even got on, was, okay, China is this and that, and they have a language that is quite different from ours, and I didn't understand exactly why it's quite different, but it obviously is. And it's funny that no one in China speaks English and no one out of China speaks Chinese. I mean, and yet it is somehow able to uh, do quite well. Uh, 
my feeling is that the future of sales and the future of systems, organizing systems for selling things, will be highly visually oriented and will relate to a in particular, if you're talking about soccer, you're talking about a worldwide audience. So words are going to be a big problem, and I would uh, work with pictures. And, and well, another do way, you think that the visual aspect is so important. Yeah, just come up with a visual so, system. Right. Well, I do you think, think that Darren Lanier so, so is? Uh, to get you to the purchase page where you actually buy the item would just be pictures. The competition will be a competition. It appears to be the competition of pictures. Everybody would know, click here for this, you know, arrow or continue or, I don't know. I'm just wondering from from the McLuhanites, though, because um, there is, is, you you know, I I perceive one of two things in my industry right now. Um, I see an overload of visual information whereby there is, there is so much going on visually. Um, and then what, what my instinct is telling me is that, that, that the patterning and the conditioning of the consumer is coming more in line with a more simplified procedure. So um, as I said, you know, designing um, an interface for a website and, you know, and designing an iPhone app, for example, are two completely in different entities. And while I feel that the, um, uh, you know, it, it's somewhat it's somewhat narrow-minded to, to to think that there's a separation anymore. So well, you know, I was just thinking um, when Dad wrote the book, um, uh, the medium is the message. Um, mm-hmm. It was all picture, and right. it turned out to, it, it turned out to be a lot more engaging than the mm-hmm. printed world understanding media. And mm-hmm. when I told Dad that I couldn't understand it, he said, just read every other page, and then you'll understand me better. <laughs> well, <the laughs> Actually, Sasha, I had an idea. Why don't you have a side button you know, to, uh, to test an idea where you say, uh, concierge service, uh, let us choose for you. And just yeah. have a small box where it says price range this or that, and and then just do a random throw something at them and see what happens. Because if, as we're saying, everybody's so stressed out they don't even have time to shop, maybe they'll go for it. Yeah, but this is what I love about this 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 job that I'm in, that I'm in right now is that you know it is visual. I am a designer, but there is there's so much psychology behind. Uh, behind everything, and this is why you know, just, I, lo- I love listening to you guys, and I have admittedly been a lurker for a while, but it is, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, um, it's something that, that, that is happening so fast. Um, you know, technology is, is growing exponentially, and, um, you know, as, as interface designers, we've got to be able to keep up. And... Um, so that's why I was asking you all for your opinion. And while I agree that it, you know, I read a really interesting article in Fast Company recently about the end of advertising and how advertising agencies are all dead and um, and how, you know, the, the big brands like Nike, for example, are turning away from them and now turning to, uh, to their consumers because we have a, a new environment right now in the fact that there's so much emphasis on, um, on customer feedback, um, 
and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's all this going on at the same time. Um, and, you know, my industry has changed so much in the past two years. There are things that we do now that we would never even consider doing, doing two years ago. Um, so, yeah, I, just, I, wonder, I wonder very much, you know, how, how we're going. And I do agree that it is becoming visual, but as an, as an interface designer, trying to separate the visual to make sense to a consumer um, is, um, is, is, is an interesting, it's an interesting thought, an, an interesting uh, conversation. And you had said that uh, the overload of visual information is what's going on now, so maybe uh, uh, a minimalist approach and right, and that's, that's basically what David was. That's essentially what David was saying, confirming what what I thought initially, what my instinct was on it. It's called subliminal seduction. Mhm. Mm um, is Scott Taylor still there? If, yeah. if Scott Taylor's still there, like uh, Scott, do you um, is this where uh, Jaron Lanier is pushing with that uh, programming language he's developing? And uh, uh, don't you see some of the uh, adverse effects of pursuing this line of uh, thought? Um, it's been a long time since I've paid any attention to Jerome Lanier. Uh, 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 he, he actually is uh, moving more and more away from um, digital enterprises uh, to uh, the attempt to uh, deal as I understand it, with more and more synesthetic kinds of uh, approaches. Um, but um, I, I'm not exactly certain I can't speak for what he's doing. If I, if I had the Sash's problem, I would probably think in terms of a, more of a portal, which I think is what David, in a way, is saying. Uh, a portal is like an array of services tailored to, to your own preferences. Right. So I'd I'd want to engage the potential buyer into to learn their preferences. So in other words, they would select a whole bunch of stuff that didn't have anything to do with buying uh, soccer shoes. But I'd want to know them, and then I would enter them into a portal, uh, which would give them whatever you want to give them in terms of shoes or whatever. So I I, I think uh, personally, web pages. Um, even like I was interested in uh, some people that moved away from blogs because nobody reads them and they're doing everything on Facebook because they can get like friends, right? I look and at the so, pictures on blogs, though. Pardon? I look at the pictures on blogs. Yeah, but in terms of individuals like musicians and stuff like this, that uh, they they found out that uh, really they didn't get much uh, much from having a blog, but once they went into Facebook, uh, a lot of different stuff happened for them. I don't. I don't know anything about Facebook. So because I, I of the inter because of the interactive engagement that Facebook provides. Bob, yeah. I want to know what Marshall McLuhan would think of Facebook. Could you give us a Could you give us a kind of a little update on that? You're so good at Marshall doing Marshall. Are you talking about? What, is, what, did you, what, what do you think of Facebook? Uh, it's a great place to save face. <laughs> do you think he would have expanded upon that at all? No, there's there's a lot to say about it. Um, David just asked, was, what do you think Marsha McLuhan would say about Facebook today? Um, face up to it. I remember so one I of the first fun. questions I asked Marsha McLuhan. It was at a lecture at USC, 
And I was very much enamored by the space. Uh, it was the time of the ah, it was a, the time of a man going to the moon or something like that. And I asked him in a lecture, you know, this is from the audience. I said, "What do you think of uh, the space program?" And because I was so interested, and I was wondering if he even gave it a, a second thought, you know, uh, and you know, thinking of him as being a god of understanding things, I wanted to know what his understanding of the space program was. And he says, very simple. Uh, when the first man got into outer space, uh, he looked back at uh, planet Earth, which is the first thing he saw when he got out there, and he says, oh my God, it's a work of art. That's what the first man said. And that meant everything to him, because uh, what, what the answer was is that what the space program was giving us on one level was a spiritual kind of a, uh, because when he said uh, the word was, oh my God, it was a kind of a spiritual attachment and also an aesthetic attachment, you know, art and the, and the spirit. So I thought that was kind of very interesting. So within that kind of a context, I'm asking you one more time, uh, Marshall, what do you think of Facebook? That's right. I'm uh, Shannon Marshall. Uh, I was looking for I was looking for an old email from Buzz Coaston who we featured a few weeks ago. And I wanted to say this in response to Sasha about the new sensibility. But the Facebook question, uh, this turns out to be the answer to uh, uh, your Facebook point. Uh, Buzz wrote back on um, March 30th, texting is both haptic and tactile. Four, kid, four kids born around 1990, for, for them, it's the preferred way to communicate. That's haptic and tactile. So think of what, listen, Sasha, what I say next about whether we're going uh, visual or not. Here's what uh, Buzz says. I, since he's posting YouTubes all, all the time, he knows what's going on in all the other age groups. And he says, I also noticed that this group, these kids born around 1990, make really short YouTubes, most are under 60 seconds, a jumble of images and sound usually rendered unintelligible by special effects manipulation. There are a few examples in this video. Uh, so he does the new video that he's sending me in that style. He said, most people over 20 will not like it nor get it. Now, that would be in the most advanced, what McLuhan calls first world, the, the kids in North America being like this. So Sasha, is your audience the TV landscape, which would require slower movement and a, and a stabilizing factor, that would be going towards pictographic, if that's what you mean by visual, iconographic branding. That's there. The question is, is does the chip body, going, and these kids with hyper chip body interaction, where the, the, most, like the most tactile that the commercial is, the better. In other words, a blur, nothing communicated, it's unintelligible. They do not want to communicate, which relates to Scott's theme of being socially autistic. The point is, is not to communicate, this new generation would be. So how does that translate into that? But if you're making ads for, you know, 30s and 40s and 50-year-olds, that's different. So Facebook, McLuhan said that uh, right hemisphere people can see faces and left hemisphere people can't because the left hemisphere specialist vision can't integrate the, uh, the parts of the face as much as a right hemisphere integrative oral sensibility it can see face because it can organize the face into parts. Now, this is a humorous statement by Marshall, but there's some truth in it. So Facebook, 
means that for the right hemisphere kids or corpus callosum kids, they do not recognize anything unless they see its face. But the face they see is a jumble of interaction and quick Twitter sound bites. So the face that they're forming is not the visual face, but the face of contact or information versus communication. So, uh, yeah, and something else which I'd like to can I can I jump in here? Yeah. Um, they uh, in a really peculiar uh, case, they found that one fellow uh, with um, brain damage uh, who couldn't see faces uh, could sing, and when he sang towards somebody who he was looking at, then he could see the face. So that seemed to have something to do with what you're saying. Yeah, in other words, you make a jumbled up non-visual singing. When a kid makes a YouTube, they're singing, and the response helps them to see that person. Right. They connect, and that's communication rather than information. That's connecting. Uh, But you connect by approaching each other in non-connectable modes. You must appear to be cool and autistic before I will talk to you. (laughs) That's why Baudrillard uh, said McLuhan was a musician. Yes. And that's why Doug Copeland projecting, you know, his his own isolation, he calls McLuhan an autistic aphasic. Yeah. Which is silly, but it, it is an example of the next generation projecting their own sensory bias on an icon like McLuhan. Is a blog like there should medium. be a book. What? Is a blog a medium? No, there's no medium as a separate object anymore, like a telephone was a medium. And, and, a, and a medium, as McLuhan meant it, was the previous environment that the new technology, like a telephone, affected. So when the Internet came in, it affected the medium. The medium was the global theater and the mixed corporate media. But the, the Internet itself is not a locatable, visualizable medium. So it is a medium, but it is not identifiable in any traditional eye, ear, smell okay. terms. Oh, wait a second, wait a second. Stop, stop right there. You said that the telephone was a medium. Isn't that what you just said? Uh, no, I said it's a new technology when it came in, and it affected the medium. The medium, as McLuhan wait, defined wait, it, was all the previous technology. Wait a second. It, you said, but you said telephone is not a medium. That's right. It, any new technology is not a medium. The definition of medium, as Marshall said it, and no one knew he did this until he told us in the 70s, the medium is all the previous technologies in the culture, and that's how you register the effects of the new technology on the medium that's there, and you watch the changes the old medium goes through, or the medium. That's only a little confusing for me, but... <laughs> it's meant to be confusing. I'm tuned into the kids. I've got to be blurred, autistic, and incomprehensible, even to be registered as possibly cool. Okay. Okay, now, let me ask you a question. It's Mary. Yes, Mary, we recognize you. You're an okay. old buddy here. We've it's seen you for two hours now. Canadian accent. Yes. I have a, I have a question. Um... I'm on the Internet a lot, but I'm on the telephone more because I find the telephone a lot friendlier, and I'm really emotionally, um, I'm able to express myself better with the other person, even raising money. Um, I find the Internet cold. I find the Internet... um, um, You mean email. You find email cold? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you can write a half a sentence and... They might call you back or they may not call you back. But I like to pick up the telephone because the medium of the telephone, to me, 
is so powerful, almost more powerful than the Internet, because you can say things with passion, sincerity, um, nuance, uh, almost getting to, uh, um, to understand each other, arranging appointments, having personalities uh, um, synchronized. I, I love the telephone. I feel a lot warmer on the telephone than the Internet. What do you mean by I telephone? I use the Internet a lot. What do you mean by telephone? When I have to, when I have to close the deal and, and do something, I use the telephone. And the telephone is what really wraps up. Are you, are you talking um, about a real telephone or a cell phone? I'm talking about a telephone or a cell phone. Either one. They're the same for you. Right. But I find the telephone so powerful. And um, uh, the internet very unfriendly. Even you know what makes things happen in China, is it's it's uh, they have no telephones. They have cell phones. Uh, they call them uh, mobiles. Uh, they have mobile phones, and hardly right. hardly anybody's talking on them. Only big talkers talk on them. <laughs> the people, the way they use cell phones in China, I don't know how they do it in Chinese because there's no characters on the phone. I don't know how they get to the right characters, but they know how. They use computers the same way. But it's all texting. Texting is what makes China happen right now. If you want something to happen, you text somebody. Uh, sometimes you call them up, they're hard to get, but they do read the text. Uh, do you do I any know, texting? Now, what do you think of texting, David? I don't even know how to text. I don't either. <laughs> yeah, but if you want to make things happen, you ought to get into texting <laughs> because that's what makes things happen in China. But you know what? It's I a little kid's thing. I Texting is a little kid's thing. Grown-ups are the ones that like to talk. Little kids <laughs> I find the telephone the most powerful medium in the world. When Dad first introduced, or actually, excuse me, he didn't. I think it was General Electric or some phone company, General Phone, introduced the video phone. Of course, that didn't work. That was decades ago because the video phone came into your living room Dad was telling me all this, and and could um, <clears throat> picture you, uh, even with rollers in your hair, in your pajamas. I mean, you had no privacy, so obviously the video phone didn't work. But I see that the telephone. Um, uh, well, I hope I'm explaining explaining myself. I mean, like the dialogue that we're having here would not be the same as if we were on the internet. Okay. And, and doing the same, you know, uh, uh, addressing the same issues. I, 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 I want to disagree just a little bit with that because there's a side uh, point to this that I was involved with two years ago. It was a competition I did for, for bamboo uh, houses. Uh, is anybody familiar with Second Life? Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. It was yes, very I interesting. Am. I had a friend who had an island in Second Life, and she used to give these conferences in, like, places, and she'd build architecture and... And I was invited to give conferences and slideshows. And where we talked at one point, I gave a conference uh, to 40, 50 people, and they all have their own avatars and things like that. That is actually better than a telephone. And, and it's kind of a conference like we're having, but you see people's fake avatars. And, you know, it's, it's, it is a kind of a, I don't know if it's a medium or whatever it is, but it's a technology. I don't think it's caught on really big, but it has an incredible potential. Well, I think it's you mean, are you telling now. me that the telephone has incredible potential? 
No, it's like a telephone, but better. It's like a telephone. It's like a video phone. It's like a conference room. It's like it's a virtual life, in a way, virtual. Now you, see, now you see, I think that would work better, maybe with. Uh, uh, no, I'm not saying with children, but but with the yuppies in our generation. Yeah, well, I mean, there are people that have had um, that have actually left their chemical body wives for their second life wife. Is this Sasha talking? Yes, it is. Yeah. Sasha, have you ever been to Second Life? I haven't, no, but um, I've been keeping up with, with all of those going yeah, on. Yeah, they are people that, that uh, sometimes they're older people who prefer their avatars to themselves, and, and they have yeah. more friends in, in Second Life than in real life, and, and but there are places they prefer going to rather than driving down to a bar. You can go to a bar in Second Life. There was a great book called Snow Crash, which was all about, uh, which actually invented Second Life like 10 years ago, but... Uh, it's a kind of very interesting medium. But, uh, you know, when it comes to mediums, and, you know, and I still don't know McLuhan's definition of a medium. It was something going in the past. But nowadays, the way it's, it seems to be looking out is that the telephone, the TV, the movie, uh, they all, everything is all in, like, one system. It kind of looks at a, the book. The, everything now is coming down to one little thing that's everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I found it, just sort of backtracking a little bit, I, I, it's interesting that you brought up this, um, this, this text um, conversation here because I have a 15-year-old daughter, um, and I was downtown with her on the weekend, and she was trying to arrange to meet a friend, and um, she wasn't replying to her text messages, so I said, why don't you just call her? And she said, Mom, she looked at me, and she said, Mom, we don't use the phone to call each other. Right. In China, no one does. It's all. She was absolutely that. That that was. I mean, she was adamant. So I said, "Well, why don't you try? It'll ring. It'll have a different sound. Maybe it'll it'll have her pick it up so that you can get your answer quicker." So she tried, and, and her friend didn't answer. But but that was her very, very valid, very honest, very you know steadfast answer. We don't talk on the phone. We text and we, um, and they message on Facebook. That's what Chinese. That's how they communicate. Yeah, that's Chinese. But you see, text. I find that personal. I mean. Um, well, maybe I'm behind the times, but talking to all of you, I'm getting to know your personalities. I couldn't get to know your personalities, you know, because we do, we demonstrate uh, what might be visual body language through our tone and the words that uh, we choose to use in our diction and so on like that. It's much more intimate, and I agree talking on the phone versus texting or email is a much more intimate way of communicating to another person. Well, for instance, when I raise money, I do two things. I call the CEO of a corporation, and if I get an excitement, he'll probably send it down to the right person, okay? But he gets to know me over the phone, okay? Then... The second thing he says to me is, Mary, send me an email. But the first thing he wants to hear is my voice, my enthusiasm, my excitement over the project, and his excitement to be able to send it to the right person in his company and to follow up by email. So I think that we're looking, yeah. Well, we generally create a vibration through, um, through the work, through our ears of your voice hitting my ear, you know? And that's right. the vibration, and that vibration 
Didn't McLuhan say right. that the telephone obsolesced the CEO, made everybody the CEO? I think McLuhan made some comments. About he said that. it obsolesced the organization chart. Yeah. No. Yeah, and that's what the Nazis were the first to really accomplish that. That's his first essay in the first explorations about the effect of the telephone in the 30s on bureaucratic organization. Well, I disagree. Hmm. But uh, uh, comment on the second life. I can't remember, Bob, if we, we looked at that together or not. But uh, Eric uh, McLuhan starred on one of those things. They had on his yeah, that's that. Was yeah, wasn't he? That, that he he, uh, he, he talked Egyptian. about the Egyptian thing. Yeah, that was yeah. Ken Hudson's Second Life site. He interviewed Bob Logan and Eric and a bunch of other people. Yeah, yeah on there, so they, and I find it really slow. Uh, it doesn't have enough body length, body movement. That one, those ones didn't. That's the only ones I've seen. What year was that? Ninety, uh, uh, like four or five, six years ago. Yeah, it's gotten a lot better in the last couple of years, very fast. I'll have to go look at it again. Yeah. So the three things uh, dealing with medium or media is one, at least I'm talking about philanthropic stuff, but that can be carried on to other issues. One, you make the call. You, inter- you introduce yourself. He gets to know your enthusiasm, your excitement, um, which passes on over to him. He's excited enough to send it over to human resources, too. And then he just says, do you think you could send a description of it, not by dis- uh, uh, snail mail, but by the Internet? And you say, absolutely. And then the third thing, because they'll say yes most of the time, um, is you go and meet them and shake hands and say thank you. Okay? So the Internet is, is one of the media, media uh, um, that makes things happen. Now, well, whether Mary, you're talking about juggling your bodies. The telephone is the uh, analog electric media. The email is the chip body. And then you go and meet them in your chemical body. You're talking about the juggling the three there. The right. TV, the TV body is the phone, the old analog media, where words mean something. But the chip body is so fast, words are not fast enough for them, and you don't like that. Becomes a cold environment for you. Well, it works, and it works for all the people I know that are in public. Relations. No, no, no. I'm saying the chip, the email. You, does the email work for you? Uh, well, you know, when a CEO says to me, "Just send a, a description of the project over to me by email." And I'll send it over to Human Resources, but I'm very excited about this, he'll say. Okay. Then Human Resources calls me and says, um, we'd be very interested in meeting you. When do you think that you could come and meet our people? Okay. It's a three-way thing. Yeah, and you begin with the phone, and you're saying the email works on the second tier, on the second movement. The third tier is uh, person-to-person. Yeah. You pick up the check and you and you go and celebrate. <laughs> That's right. Done it many times. <laughs> yep, I've done it a lot. <laughs> so the juggling of the four bodies, says Sasha, is the is the larger framework to figure out what you need to do in the future. And it seems that the shiftingness, the portrayal of rapid, so fast you can't even register what's being said, or what Buzz says, unintelligible, seems to be the, the uh, figure of communication for the coming generations. 
Right, and, and I agree with you, Bob. The trouble that I have um, with our particular demographic is that it's so broad. Um, we have a young, I mean, we have um, over a million Facebook fans, uh, so we cover very, very strongly that, that, that the youthful de demographic, and yet um, with, you know, our rugby stores, we're also, you know, we sell to, to coaches. We, we basically cover every demographic. And so I very often bear that in mind while I'm while I'm working and doing what I'm doing that that I have to be able to 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 um, create an interface a, you know an information architecture that is going to appeal and make sense to a very broad demographic in the yeah here's the insight I get from that Sasha broad appeal is what I call the TV landscape that's the images of nations and cultures and races and and products. That general stuff, which is not the way the young kids leave. They live. They don't see objects. They see interactive, blur, unintelligible interaction. So the problem is the chip technology, chip body obsolesces the TV body. You're well, still doing ad for the TV body, and you know that it's moving toward even more nano interaction, nano communities. Right. Know, but kids aren't watching TV anymore. Did you know that? That's what I mean. She, she. That's what I'm just saying. She's when she talks about broad demographics. That's the old lingering TV landscape, and the chip body is where the action is. And she would like to communicate to that, but her job is to do the branding, the larger, bigger demographic, which is harder to do the subtleties of. It's, you're really on the borderline of what you're. What you have to do is obsolesced by what actually people are doing. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I have to go. Okay, well, it was really great to have you here, Mary. Thanks a lot. And come back next week. Bye-bye, Mary. I'll, I'll bring you in. Well, come in as many times. Nice talking to you, Mary. Nice talking to you, Mary. Okay, Mary. nice, talk nice talking to you, David. Yeah, and we'll have to talk more about China later. You okay, bye-bye. It's, it's a big place, very important. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you, Mary. So, so what were you saying in response to me, Sasha? Um... I, I I agree with you. I I totally agree with you, and that that's essentially the um it 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 can be somewhat paralyzing in that way because we you know the statistics say that we have you know less than one point five seconds to make an impression when something. <laughs> See, Sasha, we're, it's it's in all industries, all fields, in the economy. They cannot get together and organize an uh, international currency, which would be the big press conference from some big conference, right, in the UN or something. They'd announce this and it would be a big uh, TV spectacle. But most of the people would be too busy texting and even pay attention to it. So every industry or old medium is in this paralyzing cusp between the obsolescence of the spectacle level of branding and the nano level that people are actually interacting on, mm -hmm. which is the new chip body. So you're either going to be you come up with the final successful mode or you rely on what McLuhan says, you will retreat as the TV landscape branding becomes obsolesced in actuality. It then becomes a comforting zone, like fundamentalist religion is a comfort zone for literate people as they encounter the media spectacle in the chip body. So what you're, you're going to be uh, servicing the, uh, the uh, old people's home, so to speak, the old media. I pre I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to go soon, uh, Bob. Remember, I have a 
on doctor's appointment. Right. No, you've done really great, David. You've but made this a fantastic go, show. I've got like two minutes left. Okay. Anything that anybody wants to ask me uh, about anything that I've said or haven't made clear that before I sign off and say bye-bye and thank you? Is there any any story about did Marshall? What tell us a story that you don't you feel uncomfortable telling about Marshall? What about when Trudeau came and he wouldn't let Trudeau stay over? Oh, that was kind of really interesting. Um, uh, what happened was, uh, I mean, Marshall and I were very close, and it, actually, uh, probably the best way to describe my relationship with him was when we met. Uh, we had a kind of a fondness for our differences. And uh, one of the things, uh, the main thing about our differences is he had a way with words, which I did not. I mean, he was a, a literature professor, and he could even read James Joyce. <laughs> yeah. uh, he had a real w a way with words. And I had a real way with images, uh, which are probably opposites, right? I don't know. Yeah. Seem to be opposites. And uh, he did not have really a great way with images. I mean, I, I spoke through images. And, and that whole uh, uh, thing that I did, which he loved very much, that show at the L.A. County Museum of, of, uh, of, of Art, with that it was a, uh, what I did was a kind of a multimedia show of uh, video and slides. It was all images, and it hardly said anything. Uh, there were almost no words whatsoever. And I was describing and understanding a whole city only through images, like you were walking around the city or flying around the city, and you would understand it that way. That's what turned him on, because that was kind of like the city as classroom, and I was doing the city of classroom as, like a, as an artwork. When we came together, we, wherever we were together, wherever it was that when he visited my house in L.A. or when I would stay at his house uh, in Toronto, which was like in a park there, um, we would spend hours and hours and hours. And I remember one night in particular, uh, we were at dinner, and uh, he had a religious side that I did not have, and the, it came up the story of, uh, of Jonah, the prophet, and he had so many interesting things to say and, uh, about that. Anyway, that whole night we spent walking around uh, the, 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 the park or the, the, the trees, and it was like we were both like computers. He was like this computer of words, and I was just a visual computer, just images. And it was like our relationship was we were both these computers with an amazing amount of information that we wanted to dump on each other, and we were interested in each other. I was interested in his computer, and he was interested in my computer. And so um, the, the, the story you particularly wanted to ask about, the next night we weren't finished, and that afternoon he got a call from uh, – he was not only kind of a consultant to the governor of, of, uh, of California, but at that time he was also very much a consultant with a Pierre Trudeau, who was the, what, prime minister or premier of, of, of... Prime minister. Prime minister. And uh, he called up. Uh, he had done a lot of consulting with uh, Trudeau. And uh, he, Trudeau called up that afternoon. He says, listen, something very important. I've got to come and, and stay in my room. His room was the attic room where I was staying. And I couldn't believe I was over here and talking to the prime minister. And, and uh, he says, I'm sorry, uh, your room is taken. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And I couldn't believe that he would rather, you know, talk to me uh, than uh, than come to the aid of his uh, prime minister at a time of need. And so I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And, well, uh, well, David. Part of the reason is he was making a kind of exit out of the university in the Toronto environment to whatever could happen in L.A. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I think he was ready to go on to the future, and, and I'm, I'm so sorry that the future didn't happen. And at one point, somebody earlier in our conversation said that what can happen to computers is that they can crash because they're not made to take on very high-end, they were talking about AI information and stuff like that, and they were not able to take on very high-end stuff. Uh, I forget who said that. I think maybe it was the guy from... Uh, Scott Taylor. Yeah. And what I couldn't help thinking, I didn't say it before, and now that Mary's off, I, I just can't help thinking it. I wonder if, if uh, Marshall crashed because he was so high-end. Uh, yes, no, that's my theory. He crashed whenever any new technology came in. When TV came in, he was sick for six years, late 40s, early 50s. Okay. Then when the satellite came in in 60, he, he had that brain surgery, really bad sickness. Then when the instant replay comes in late 60s, he has the longest brain surgery. Brain surgery 67 and some kind of thing in 60. And then he collapses in, 70, in 70, the late 70s when the Android meme comes in. He was, he was a... A, res a canary in the mind responding to the devastating effects for the chemical body of these new media environments. So you're right. And you answered my question. He did crash. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy must be corrected that uh, people can crash too. <laughs> but we can recover. Well, maybe not anymore, but we used to yeah. be able to recover. Anyway, thank you very much uh, for, this, uh, for this. No, you were great, David. You really. Okay. And uh, I'll send you some stuff that, you can, uh, that I've been talking about, some visual stuff. Some pictures yes. you can put on the internet tomorrow. Yeah, a couple of articles, even your picture and your work. Okay. No problem. Thanks a lot, Thanks David. Thanks so Bye much, everybody. David. Great, Thank David. Night-night. Night-night. Wasn't that great, Scott? Oh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, if you were talking to me, is Scott Norris there? No, he doesn't Scott. seem to be. Um, I wanted to say something to Andrew. You know, he was asking about the... Chinese uh, relative to their uh, whether they're inoculated against virtual reality or not and uh, two great guys that I met who are artists are uh, are um, uh, John Craig Freeman and uh, Will uh, uh, Pappenheimer and they have a project that they call the Verta Flanerazine uh, uh, it's an installation, an art installation, uh, where they uh, put up a little uh, hospital lab, uh, and then they have um, uh, people come in and they ask them questions about whether or, or uh, about their 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 use of the internet uh, and uh, virtual medium, and then if uh, they show any really uh, uh, adverse uh, features uh, or symptoms then they uh, give them uh, a, a fake uh, uh, medicine, uh, verta-flanurazine, uh, uh, to, to, to take that will uh, stop them from um, having these adverse uh, 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 symptoms. And when they were in China, they uh, uh, had a very successful um, uh, go, and, um, but one of the Chinese students uh, apparently uh, was uh, using virtual reality uh, quite a lot in the sense of uh, uh, some kind of second life things. And he said that, uh, that the virtual world was the real world and that the uh, natural environment was a false one. So he had completely inverted this and they were just stupefied that uh, somebody uh, would actually uh, have that kind of feeling. So I think that that's 
tending to happen, and this was a Chinese student. Right. Uh, Andrew Crystal, you got a response if Andrew's here? He is. He does have teaching oh, responsibility. Yeah, he has teaching responsibility, so he comes in and out. Um, okay. Okay, has anybody else got a response uh, to what Scott just said? Maybe we're all alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, is Sasha there? I wanted to say. Uh, I'm just curious of what uh, what were these adverse symptoms? Were they physical symptoms? Um, well, just any kind of abnormal usage uh, or, uh, you know, not being uh, any kind of withdrawal symptoms, you know, uh, in terms of uh, the ideas of computer addiction and virtual reality addiction. I'm not sure exactly how they, they define them. But a funny thing about that art project is um, that um, it was thought that their product was an actual medical one. And a number of um, uh, medical journals and um, uh, in different countries uh, picked it up. And, of course, this was totally a, a put-on. There was no such thing as uh, any kind of drug that would uh, help um, uh, addiction to the Internet or anything else. So that's the bigger story, that it was a, 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 a staged medical thing, that it was a staged. I would think that that's the bigger story. Yeah, just look up Will Pappenheimer. He's uh, uh, yeah. quite, a, quite a wonderful guy. Hey, Will, yeah. thank you. Another thing I wanted to say about that Mary was bringing up that McLuhan used to talk about was he said that people tend to lose their neuroses when they talk on the telephone. So you get a, a more genuine uh, individual uh, over the telephone than you would tend to get in uh, other conversational uh, contexts. Right. Now, that you've got an oral person might respond, but, you know, the literate person often finds it hard to talk on the phone, a certain kind of uptight, stiff upper lip, uh, privacy oriented literate person, so different types of people would respond in different media, and you're saying, I'm saying that an oral person or someone who's made neurotic because they can't fit into the general mechanical industrial setup, they can't fit into the eye, the telephone with its intimate oral interfacing relieves them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would, and it's also a kind of a filter. Uh, in uh, that, and people recognize that that in a way uh, the voice is a warmer, more fuzzy thing uh, than it is in when you are dealing with um, uh, vocals in in uh, an actual environment. Right, and also like people, they said the internet allowed people to be new selves because no one could see them. So the phone. Allow, is the first one to allow you to be without your chemical body and not be judged by your chemical body. So that would, re, would relax you. Yeah. Well, Bob, I think to get, I'm getting really pretty relaxed here. I'm going to have to go as well. Well, one more thing. I, I want to bring up one thing. Joseph Nechvatal, N-E-C-H-V-A-T-A-L, that artist. Did you ever write about him? Um. Actually, um, we had a bit of a, um, a, a collision online um, in that he quoted me without giving um, uh, any indication uh, that it was I who had said something. And he quoted me during a, um, 
uh, uh, lecture uh, that he gave at MoMA in New York City. And uh, so actually what happened is as a result of that, um, he wouldn't retract this on the Internet, but it's so long ago that I don't think that it, uh, that, that it ever comes up anymore for anybody. But uh, nevertheless, he is one of the great um, graduates of um, the, uh, the what is it, the um, Collegium, the, uh, you know, Ray Ascot's. Uh, yes, Ray Ascot in England. In England. Yeah. And he wrote an incredibly interesting PhD dissertation on the aesthetics of immersion. Yes. And um, I have uh, the the upshot and the good part of this story is that I've ended up uh, using his material and quoting him, and <laughs> uh, not necessarily giving giving him the credit that he deserves. So uh, there's some poetic justice in the whole of it, and I would consider him to be a friend at this point. Right. Is he aware of your of your writings where you quote him and not attributing him? I, I, I have never uh, written anything uh, that I, and I always would uh, indicate uh, that I had. It's more in common conversation where you really don't have the chance, and also yeah. in the fact of. But you know, are you in touch? Growing. Right, are you in touch with no, him? Is that no, what you? Uh, he he sends me notices of any exhibitions, art exhibitions that he has, but we're not in regular touch. But. Uh, I think we certainly could be. I think he is uh, uh, an interesting guy. Yeah. So um, this incident about him using his speech in MoMA would be in the 90s? Uh, it was in the 90s, and it was in terms of um, my uh, definition of electrocracy, which right. um, he took directly from one of the cyber stage um, articles. So you can go there and, and read uh, the quotation. And, of course, you know, the posting on the Internet uh, is before uh, his, his speech at MoMA, so it's uh, easy to... And it was actually also published in the magazine, CyberSage magazine. Yeah, see, okay, for some reason, the name came up. Someone may have sent a quote, and uh, I said, who's this guy? I never heard of him. But then I thought, wait a minute, I think I saw his name in Scott's writing. So then I went to the wiki and read up on him. And, uh, you know, he's McLuhan-esque, and he's part of the New York scene, and he talks about um, the discarnate situation. And what struck me was, in 1999, he obtained his PhD in the philosophy of art and new technology concerning immersive virtual reality at Roy Ascot Center for Advanced Inquiry in the Interactive Arts, University of Wales College, Newport, UK. Now, Roy Ascot, I became aware of him in the 90s, and he was this interesting guy using McLuhan, but he was not known by the usual McLuhan circles because he's in the art world. That's true. Um, I didn't come across Ray Ascot uh, until, you know, just a few years ago, actually, when uh, friends of mine uh, mentioned him. Uh, yeah, and he uses McLuhan and then and develop it. So what, what this, this was new for me. Here was this pretty good uh, New York artist coming out of Roy. They have Roy Ascot. You're saying Ray? I, no, Roy. Yeah, they're coming out of his school. And I thought, wow, that's a whole stream of McLuhanism 
that's coming through Roy's school that, that is connected to the art world because he was an artist. This is, the, this is how McLuhan, this is what I discovered the other day. My theory was this is how McLuhan gets in the art world through Roy Ascot. And Nekvital is an example of that. Now, that's the world that you monitor. You monitor the art world, at least the digital art world. A little so bit, you, yeah. So you know the importance of Roy Ascot, though he's never discussed among Bob Logan world or something. You know, he's not heard. I think Derek might know him. Uh, but it's, but that, that, that's a whole stream of, you could call it, media colleges that, are, that is not known in North America, it seems. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's he's kind of far out, uh, Roy Ascot. Um, yeah, and uh, so he's like he's like Tyard de Chardin. To keep things a little more focused. Right, he's the Tyard de Chardin versus McLuhan of the art world. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And, and yeah. Bob, you say so many things that are so uh, evocative and provocative. I really enjoy it. Well, I enjoy the fact I, I, you enjoy them. Yeah, well. But, but anyway, so, so, so I think uh, I'm looking up electrography. I'm just thinking now, electrography, is that, is that in his wiki? I mean, I thought I read that that word was identified with him. And, yeah, you, and that's he, what he got it from not. you. I, yeah, he got it from me. Uh, uh, and actually, there was a fellow who coined that term in uh, the 60s who was, uh, it means something very, very different uh, than, uh, than I do. And uh, so uh, that's, uh, but you can go to Taylor's Tyrads and it, it has, um, right, uh, electrocratic art science, but it also has in uh, another article the the exact definition, the first definition that I had of it. Right, and electrocracy in the in the sixties would be something that uh, the big new Brzezinski would be associated with. The way he meant electrocracy, would, would you agree? Yeah, the big I, new Brzezinski. I'd have, to do, uh, I'd have to look at that again. Uh, right, and then there's also you know its association with kinds of chemistry and. And, uh, and and other things, which is is very, very very different. Right. So so you um, have known of Nekvital's work for a long time, but you did not know about the Roy Ascot school until recently. Yeah, I didn't know about Roy Ascot until uh, I guess about ten years ago. But I I knew uh, about uh, about the other fellow uh, back in the middle middle nineties. Uh, yeah, it says here, the basis of the viractual, V-I-R-A-C-T-U-A-L, his conception, viractual, is that virtual producing computer technology has become a noteworthy means for making and understanding contemporary art, and that this brings artists to a place where one finds the emerging of the computed, or the virtual, with the uncomputed corporeal, or the actual. That's like the well, dialectic yeah, that David's lot. talking about. Yeah, that's not, that's not my dialectic. No, but he so is... He's, he's de developed it further. Yeah, he goes, this amalgamate, which tends to contradict some central technical cliches of our time, is what Nekvital calls the veractual. Digitalization is a key metaphor for veractuality in the sense that it is the elementary translating procedure today. Nekvital thinks that in every era, the attempt must be made anew to wrest the art practice away from conformisms that are about to overcome it. So... 
is he trying to save old art from the digital or he's throwing everything to the digital? I have no idea. Sometimes <laughs> he's very hard to follow. Um, and uh, I, I think a lot of his work is groundbreaking and uh, interesting uh, and needs and should and deserves uh, attention. Um, but um, I, I think that I would critique it quite heavily. Yeah, it's usually they, they, they're using, they're actually repeating McLuhan and don't note it. Don't know it. They're still at the tactile, yeah, yeah. tactile phase. They don't yeah. get the post-tactility. If yeah. they do, they live in the, they right. live in the digitization. They, they live post-tactily, but they don't know how McLuhan has got the language that gets you to understanding the post-tactile. They, don't, they haven't learned the McLuhan language so that they can be more articulate and less confusing about the post-tactile that they're unconsciously talking about. Um, That's yeah. an immediate pattern. Um, yeah, I found I found it uh, on the internet. His definition of electrocracy, and he um, absolutely completely quotes me uh, 100%. And then he says here, uh, disclaimer, just for the public record, I do not claim to have coined the term electrocracy, uh, uh, and and. and uh, he says that's, a, that's what they the text and the idea at the time, and yet what he does is he quotes me. So this is absolute nonsense. So his character is, I'm afraid, uh, really uh, subject to scrutiny. Um, that's right. And, and he has, and uh, this is May 11th, 1996. And you, when you Google it, that's the sentence they show you. Just for the public record, I do not claim to have coined the term electrocracy. Then you go to his Wikipedia entry, and he's got a cigar like he's a thug. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's 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 really into um, all the pornographic aspects of of uh, the digital and the computerized. That's uh, uh, one of the main contents. So it's it's immersion in uh, the digital uh, body, the chip body. Right. He, the, he he's yeah. a lounge lizard hanging out in the Manhattan lifestyle, has become it, and trying to figure out how digitization wrecks his ability to hook up with someone in the bars. Of of the East Village, <laughs> he's talking yeah, about. Well, I, I want to make it perfectly clear that all of the comments he's got on electricity are mine and have nothing to do with him at all, and it's very annoying to have it there. And he does uh, he have quote marks around it, or he just uses your no, words? He has no quote marks at all, and it is absolutely everything that I wrote. And you know, it's I have it uh, before 1996. Yeah, uh, in uh, published in Cyberstage magazine, so there's no, there's no question. That's the battle between That's Toronto the, decency and and Manhattan thuggery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very very minor skirmish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, well thanks, well, Scott. Another thing that I wanted to say to you in particular is that uh, I see that Cyberstage destroys both um, time and space. And yeah. that uh, it is uh, post um, uh, synesthetic in 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 the full sense. And yep. So so what we think of now as branding is creating in our environment uh, uh, signs, master signs, which have no context whatsoever. They are not signifying anything. 
and that's uh, that's the effect, the 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 cognitive effect of uh, cyberspace. So everybody is trying to create a brand for themselves, for er all of their ideas, and uh, they're trying to create a language of, of brands and branding, which is, of course, impossible to do. Right. Now, Bojard goes into that on a broad sociological level, but you, you're talking about, in particular, a particularity physiological. Well, Baudrillard goes into it a lot in terms of mimesis or, or uh, copying or uh, uh, simulating something. Uh, yeah. And in fact, um, uh, you know, they're very, we, very, very serious terms. Um, uh, uh, we are not able to, to simulate. Um, the latest parts of the brain to develop, the most recent in human beings, are Broadman's areas 39 and 40. And in Broadman's uh, area 39, any damage that we have, uh, we have a, a aphasia. Whereas in Broadman 40, uh, any damage that we have there is related to mirror neurons and to imitation. Uh, uh, yeah, what's a mirror neuron? You mentioned that in a recent essay. What is the meaning a of a mirror neuron? Is um, a neuron that fires uh, in tandem uh, with uh, somebody else's actions around us. So we tend to think of ourselves as independent and disconnected from other people, when in fact there is a complex direct neurological connection between all people uh, uh, resonantly. Uh, and uh, so when somebody else does something, near neurons all through the body do the, that something at the same time. And as a result of that, we can interpret empathetically another person's, uh, what the other person is doing, and we can also begin to become predictive. Uh, in other words, a lot of our ability to know what's going to happen next causally comes from our ability to directly uh, not just imitate, but to to act uh, in direct tandem with our environment. Yeah, now and that's neurolinguistics. That's neurolinguistics. Proximity. No, that's uh, that's neurolinguistics. You know the NLP therapy back in the eighties uh, and nineties. Have you heard of that, Scott? Yeah, I have a lot to talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, well, I got a question. Can I jump in? Yeah, now, Scott Taylor, this is Scott Norris who you wanted to speak to. This is Scott Norris. Oh, I can't remember what I was going to say. Sorry. Scott. No, but you just I, wanted to uh, acknowledge Scott. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I was just learning about the mirror neurons, and uh, I find them fascinating. And I was thinking about them in terms of the co in the context of, you know, uh, actually being. Uh, close physical proximity to another person and that if um, if I didn't have other uh, neurological activity that distinguishes me from the other person uh, my mirror neurons wouldn't be able to tell the difference between say me and and you if we're in the same room and you make an action my mirror neurons think in almost in a sense that I made that action they create a sense of empathy but what happens when yeah, they're all um, they're yeah, Scott, that's what, that's what, uh, now let me just say this, that's what, just to acknowledge, Tina was saying uh, the term vibrational proximity is what she thinks uh, resonates right. with that. But go ahead, Scott right. Taylor. 
Well, there seems to be some kind of contract that we are able to make on nonverbal, uh, 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 non-conscious levels with the other person. And to a large degree, that contract can be term determined by attention and by listening, whether or not we uh, seem to be directly paying attention or not. And so there seem to be very firm um, physical grounds for uh, that kind of morphic resonance to, uh, to use Absolutely. that kind of expression. Well, yeah, now that resonance is, is bringing in a slightly different uh, idea than 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 the, than the idea of the mirror neuron, I think. But Scott Scott Norris is an expert on morphic resonance studies, so you brought up a term that he might quibble with there, Scott Taylor. That's why Scott no, just I, said, "Go ahead, Scott Norris, you know, about the thing, it." The, the, the you know, thing that I was interested to me is really that I was thinking about. Oh. <laughs> what, what what were you saying, Taylor? What was Taylor saying, Ben Norris? Well, I, I don't know. We're just extending this line of discussion. No, you, you spoke over let me, each let other. Me introduce, let, me do, let me introduce another thought here. Um, the, neuro, the mirror neurons, you know, it's easy for me to see how it creates a sense of empathy uh, when I'm in a room with you and uh, you, you make an action, my mirror neuron. The, like, for instance, if I have mirror neurons in my brain that will fire when I raise my left hand, I see you raise your left hand and those same neurons, a subset of them will fire in my brain. Now, That's right. Now, what, hap but wh what happens to the mirror neuron when it's con confronted with, with, with virtual reality? <laughs> um, well, we actually find that there isn't as much firing. There are actual uh, tests of that that have shown that we don't learn. Uh, it's, it's automatically considered to be an inferior uh, kind of experience. And so we, we don't tend to remember it as well, and we don't tend to see it in um, processional or procedural terms. So, it's, uh, uh, so, 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 so there isn't the same kind of uh, firing. Now, there are lots of tests that talk about uh, you creating an out-of-body experience. And so it almost seems to be the case that we're able to create a virtual uh, body for ourselves, like an avatar, but also a ghost uh, body for ourselves, which then we act as if we are firing mere neurons. <laughs> so and that's what Mary meant by a cold environment. That's what yeah. Mary McClellan finds that a cold experience. Yeah, what, what's going on in the mirror neurons when somebody has a near-death experience? They lift up out of their body. They turn around and, and look down and see their 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 their, their still corpse, uh, you know, lying there. What's going <laughs> on with the mirror neurons now? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, but, be, no, but uh, what I'm I, interested I know, in, if you could tell me, because you know a lot about. Wait, wait, it. Scott Norris, Norris, okay. let Taylor respond, then go to your next okay. excited I, idea. I, I, I thought I was being silly. I didn't expect actually a rational thought, but go ahead. Go, go ahead, Taylor. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But no, uh, there also are shared near-death experiences where people uh, on uh, that are in uh, death uh, de deathbed situations actually follow uh, the person into uh, their uh, near-death out-of-body experience and see the same things experience the same things going on. There are lots and lots of reported cases of that by, by doctors and physicians. 
And uh, so it would appear that we are capable of having near and near on experiences with the out-of-body body. body. <laughs> <laughs> the wow. out-of-body body. <laughs> well, that would be the astral body. See, that's the role of the astral body. Yeah. And then there's the chip body, two out-of-body levels here. There's the astral yeah, body. Well, the chip body gets pretty confused. Um, but, uh, like, for example, when I hear your voice on uh, the telephone, uh, in my body I have a mere no neuron response to it. So my understanding of your character and personality and physicality um, is uh, partially guided by uh, that, that, that ghosting residuum. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a lot of, of McLuhan used to talk all the time. Um, one of the, the things that he wanted kids to do was to listen to somebody they didn't know on the telephone, draw a mm. picture of what they thought that person looked like, and then um, meet the person in person, and that this was a way of getting across media literacy. And I think that that is a, a, a really excellent... Uh, yeah, I've well, never is, heard of that is, before. What is the result of that? I've often been t fooled by hearing someone's voice and then meeting them, and they, I, I realized that I'd, I'd had an image of them, and I didn't even know it, because when I saw them, they conflicted with, with the image that I created. Yeah, well, that's, that's once again that... Um, that's that's once again the synesthetic aspect of of our our and our and that and when you say synesthetic Scott Taylor that's the fill in so Scott McLuhan would say you couldn't visualize on the phone because of an acoustic electric tactile experience but you would attempt to visualize but because he said you couldn't you'd get it a flawed image and that would be why it would not match with the person. But the other dynamic that I see Scott meaning by synesthesia is that every sense fills in for the other senses in an orchestration in your consciousness, in your coherency. Yeah. So would you agree, yeah, Taylor, that synesthesia is the inter interfilling in of each sense? Um, what I'd like to say is that each sense is all of the other senses, except uh, each sense is in high definition. And so um, there really isn't a whole group of different senses. There's just a particular uh, attentive habit towards um, uh, uh, in interpreting or translating the world through one sense or another. Right. Now that, that hissing sound we're hearing right now, that's a good indication that you-know-who is lurking and just biting their teeth so they don't say anything, but that's an interesting... Uh, we used to get that on tailgate, right, Tina? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. so see, now he's doing it consciously. You know who's doing it consciously. <laughs> <laughs> so he's communicating synesthesia to us there. But back to what you... So, manifestation. Yeah. Could I, could I uh, just throw this out there? Um, how much of the um, image one might create just by the sound of a voice um, would be, um, the, uh, how do I want to say that? It, there's something to the sound of the voice that would create an image in my mind of another individual um, based on what that voice evoked in me on a um, uh, maybe an emotional level. Or previous how experience. Does that, how does can that I, play? Can I speak to that? Um, yeah. Uh, 
there, the voice, an individual's voice is an exact index of the sounds that individual can hear. And the sounds that person can hear uh, are also part of the resonant qualities of uh, their, own, uh, their own being. So what you are getting when you hear somebody is an, uh, uh, I don't like to use this word representation, it's an actual experience of uh, who that other person is and how they feel and what they hear, what they're listening to, how they're seeing, etc. And so you have an emotional response to that. Um, and I have trouble with that word emotional, too. Uh, in a right, sense, there's right. no such thing. It's, it is just part of our experience. And uh, it's a very high-level experience uh, as, as far as that goes, too. Yeah, emotion so is synesthesia. <laughs> the, the interface between down. the mind and synesthesia is emotion. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Well, but what also, do you mean by the uh, mind? Logic breaks down uh, to the degree that we're not able to to um, uh, to 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 uh, uh, dissociate one sense out of other in uh, other senses. Right. And the mind, Scott. I, I mean, by the me- the mind is the meta faculty. Meta, meta, meta. You know, it's always like it's the distance between you and you. Yeah. And so you fill it in in between with emotion, or yeah, what you I, call emotion. I don't, think it, I don't tend to think exactly like that. I think of the mind-brain-body as a continuum, which includes, you know, the astral body and those other kinds of bodies yeah. which you've been talking like, about. That's, yeah, I'm thinking I agree. More, more in terms of um, uh, listening to folks speak tonight, for example. Um, there was um, certain... Um, just had a connection with uh, many of the voices that kind of synced up. That I was was hearing it was pleasant. It it evoked a, a communal feeling within me. Um, that kind of thing. That it, what I was hearing was syncing up with the yeah, but voices Tina, that were Tina. Tina, if yeah. you an- try to analyze the source or root or original image, it's like the uh, poem by Yeats, out of what did my poem begin, out of what images, you know, the garbage in the street. It, to search for the root of that is probably a misnomer because you will not find the root and therefore you don't know what you're responding to. And so it's well, not that significant. That yeah, what, I don't think you can figure it out. What uh, responding to? through our ears in just this audio thing that syncs up, that, you know, evokes a a, a sense of um, connecting to um, Scott's... Well, the the common sense reason is it's associating with other sounds that were pleasant in your former experience. You know, that's the common sense thing. But if the scientists get in there, they'll find out and complexify it. Like Scott Taylor could complexify what I just said, right, Scott? Right now, do it. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> I know. There's a resonance. You know, there's a, something I should think be as complex as it's supposed to be. With certain tones. Yeah, but let Scott speak. He's responding. Go ahead. No, I'm not. I don't know what to say. Come on, just say what you did say. We want the microphone, the recording, to get what you said. No, I, it was I, talked I'm over. Here, here sure let me I, uh, probe. Well, let me probe a little bit. <laughs> <in that laughs> <Joseph Nett Patel. laughs> 
God, I want to fine tune the 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 mirror neuron thing. Um, the, you say that the that when you're in virtual reality, that the mirror neurons are not as active. Is that that's, that's crap? What? That's that's right. Okay. So so now, what about uh, the difference between watching a movie in which you're getting a, an authentic representation of a human uh, anthropomorphic interaction going on or say watching a, a, a cartoon on TV is there is do they both fall into the category of that's not uh, chemical Those reality therefore my mirror neurons are not going to respond that's right and in fact that's one reason why we become passive and become relaxed and uh, and uh, we're not we're, we're not thinking as much when I didn't get the context when Pardon me. I didn't get the. When, when are we when not thinking? With, when we're involved with with any medium other than uh, the medium of our own body and that of other people's and the environment we're in. Right. Well, that's the numbing. We're not using all. Of, we're not using our whole faculties, our whole that's physicality. Right. That's the numbing point that Marshall says. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so a painting is like a chair. You know, it relaxes certain parts of you. But I think they cause stress in, in other ways. In yeah, because uh, McLuhan talks about the dynamic tensions among tensions. It's a great statement about the, the yeah, uh, ratio right. among races. The tension of, the, of consciousness, of experience, is always there and being displaced. So if you relax it here, it'll show up over there. That's another way of explaining synesthesia. Yeah, Each color is a tension. Huh. Yeah, that's right. Um, so where do we go from here? Look, well, I wrapped it up. I guess we can go. Guys. We can go to the it's beach. It's eleven o'clock here. <laughs> and I've been on the telephone. You know, my my neck for is four fresh. hours. My ear is, you know, like like it's been it's been fun, and I can hardly wait to do it again. But you know, tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> you're out of shape. I'm just guys. I'm really interested in the whole connection to Warren Buffett. We could go over that again. <laughs> Warren Buffett. Yeah, Mary, uh, I was part of that, that whole experience Mary had recently with Warren. But the, uh, so Scott, I think Scott's saying he's got to go. Right, yeah, Taylor? Go, yeah, you guys, before but, you go, but, and this was something that was just kind of uh, way early on um, spoken about and then just... Uh, Dropped, and that was uh, when y'all were talking about um, communication versus information. Um, and I just the thing that I that had come up to for me the difference between them or was in communication is uh, engaging an engagement versus information is just data. Information is numbness. Information is a specialization of communication. What we were saying earlier, total involvement of the body naturally is communication. Information is when you have to focus on one of the senses or one of its extenses, extensions, creating information numbness. Information is what communication that we can manipulate digitally, and uh, we, we, we really don't respond to it uh, very much. Yeah. Uh, we don't recognize uh, that we are the ones who are being puppeted around. Uh, and uh, we're made we're made into the fish out of the water uh -huh. that's right okay so well you guys and well fantastic i hope you come back next week 
or whenever yeah. you can, come back, Scott. Yeah. Oh, next yeah, week is yeah. Dave Newfelt, the producer of Broken Social Scene. So we'll, he made the second Medium as a Massage album. So we'll get a musician, digital, oh, modern no, guy. Fabulous. Yeah. Okay. You'll I'll like him. There. And I just want to okay, say night thanks night, for everybody. Good night, Scott. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So we got Scott Bye. Norris. We got Matthew. We got Tina. Is Sasha lurking? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, well, actually, Sasha, we got we started to address your questions in and out there over the past half hour. Oh, can I say something in reference to uh, yeah uh, websites? Nobody has to ask permission to say yeah, something. Just don't well, talk over someone. It's, it's polite. Um, <laughs> you know, this is obvious, I suppose. I mean, tell me that this is obvious. It, the the you know I don't uh, I don't uh, I don't buy things because somebody puts an ad in my face I <laughs> I'm looking for something and then I decide okay well I'll search for that on the internet um, or in a store um, it appears to me that the way that you sell a product on the internet is that you use other media to drive people to your website you use uh, television advertising or a basketball player wearing a Nike shoe, and then they cut to a Nike commercial, and then they mention that you can get them at the website. Then you drive this audience to that website. And I'm wondering if uh, the design of the website really has that much to do with selling the product. I would think it would be the efficiency of the website. How easily can I get this? Can I use PayPal? Is it, is it quick and easy? Am I, gonna, am I getting confused in the process of making this purchase? It seems to me that what you're looking for is something that's efficient and and, and pretty damn easy to use. Um, right. Well, that's actually um, that's actually I'd say the the one of the the misnomers of um, uh, the the sort of the, the label of web designer now because I'm more particularly when you're dealing with e-commerce. Um, you know, there's, there's actually a, a, a new a career title called Information Architect. And um, that's essentially the, the, the combination between being an information architect and designer is, is basically what I do. So um, I actually had to, to uh, give a speech at, um, at Internet Retailer uh, at a conference about this, and I spoke about... Um, to to other uh, merchants essentially that 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 have their own stores about the importance of being able to realize this, the distinction between design and direction, um, and the co- the combination between the two of those. So um, that's where it becomes really interesting for me because I'm not necessarily looking at design. I'm looking at a combination of how we can use design and direction. Um, in terms of um, how you enable a user to, to find their way around a particular website, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, is, you, you know that's mm-hmm. essentially the question that I was asking the panel here is where do you foresee the future going? Are we um, in, in terms of you know specifically for my for my job? Yeah. How well, here's you, one for you. I mean, voice recognition is going to be coming in big time in the next few years. So when I'm on a website and I can say, you know, I want a, a, a blue Nike XYZ brand shoe, and it can just demonstrate that for me and rotate it in three dimensions so I can see, you know, really what I what it looks like. 
Um, right now, the closest we have to that, you know, I find these like little flash videos to be good if they're not, if they're not, if if the if if the design doesn't get not in the way. Not on an iPad. <laughs> huh? If you're not on an iPad. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't use one, so I'm not. I don't have that experience. But I see that's a different. That's a whole different thing. But I'm not so interested in the design. In the designer trying to flash, trying to show off how flashy they can be, as I am in just being able to see the product, and in it, feeling comfortable that first of all, this is a legitimate website. It has the presence of something that I can trust, and that it's easy to use. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's, that's exactly what I'm saying, is that that's, that's the subtlety of, of what design in my industry actually is. is, a, is you know, the, the, the point of what I do is trying to uh, guide you very, very subtly to a place that you need to go. Um, and you know, I use the analogy in my speech um, about um, how it is that you can have a uh, a person in an airport be guided, you know, in any city, in any country, and yet have them find their way around to a place. And it comes from very sort of visual markings of having shiny floors, which will lead you in a path, and then the, the carpet is generally for the gates. And, you know, there are all these very, very subtle um, um, characteristics of mappings, of, of visual mappings of airports that, that help you find your way around. It makes it intuitive. It makes it intuitive. You exactly. don't have to figure out how how the exactly. the damn website works. It it kind of exactly. guides you along. Right, and that's why I was saying that you know, particularly with this particular um, you know, uh, project that I have right now, not really a project, but you know, it was just, it just came came to our attention this weekend by emails. You know, what what can we do to make our footwear pages? Um, more more profitable, or because some somebody made uh, a comment that um, they thought we only sold uh, 12 pairs of shoes, when in fact we sell 12 brands, and there are hundreds of pairs of shoes beneath those brands. So that's um, you know again coming back back to that, you know how is it that one person can 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 come to a page and again you know in a, in in a second in two seconds make that assumption and to me that means that's a bad job <laughs> you know, that is not good if somebody's coming there and going, oh there's a dead end then um yeah, it's, yeah. Um, another marketing thing which i'm sure you're aware of I'm probably being ridiculously oversimplistic but like for instance if i don't really want to buy shoes because i like to try them on and walk around on them and, and come to a decision but you're going to have to make it really easy for me. You're going to have to send me the shoes in a box with a, with, that I can, uh, if I don't want them, I can uh, put that box uh, back out, you know, out on the porch for the mail guy to pick it up without having to fill out you know, a, a lot of forms and stuff like that or go through any hassles. I want to know that I can exchange that immediately if I don't like it and that that's a policy that, that you guys have. Uh, then I'm more likely to buy a couple, two or three pairs of shoes from you to see which ones I like, I'll send two pairs back, but you made a sale. Now that could yeah. be expensive, and you somehow have to build that into the price of, of the of the product. But yeah, we, there's actually there's a, there's a, there's a new word in the industry in e-commerce, anyways, and it's called Zappos. And Zappos have I'm not sure if you're familiar with their website. No, I haven't. Not, I'm not. Um, Zappos.com have become the um, the trademark standard for this particular minute of customer service. Their, custom, their, their customer service is absolutely exemplary. They will, do, they will literally bend over backwards for you. 
each of their customer service rep. They've actually written they've written books about Zappa's customer service standards of service, the way that it all goes in the in the industry. You can phone Zappos and talk about a particular shoe because they they sell shoes specifically. I mean, any kind of shoe that you you want, sports shoes, up to like hooker boots or whatever it is you feel like buying at any particular moment. You can phone up one of their customer service reps and start talking to them about your grandma's dog dying. They will stay on the phone with you for three hours. Mm. That's that's their um, now. Hey, look, pattern an insight I get from that. That's recognizing, like in Finn's wake, that every person can be therapist, doctor, athlete. You're being every function that social communication requires. That's what's yeah. happening. That's what they're offering. Yeah, and that's the Zappos model, and it's. Um, um, it's become, um, uh, you know, quite a shock because, you know, essentially they've thrown everything in the face of what everybody knows about how you interact in the e-commerce environment by saying, you know what, whereas some people would be hiding the 800 numbers, they wouldn't have customer service. If they had customer service, uh, there'd be call centers in India or places like that. Not only do they have that, but Zappos is apparently one of the best companies in America to work for because they've got a super laid-back philosophy um, you know, it's a extremely. It takes the um, the Yahoo Google um, city model the other level. They're extreme, relaxed, and allow. They they do not say what they are. You call up and you bring up some topic or do something. They go. They'll go with it. <laughs> it's like they're yeah. so. They'll just do whatever you think they're there for. Yeah. If you now that's to that's good. Five times, no problem. They'll do it because. The thing is, is that what they've done is, this is what I was saying before, is that they recognize and they've come ahead of the curve um, where, you know, the, the, um, ab- the age of advertising is dead now. And because there's a sort of mass force of communication um, that's being provided to us through the Internet, means that people talk to each other and that that is the greatest form of advertising now because, you know, you can't have somebody sit down and, and watch, um, you know, the Ed Sullivan show and actually sit through adverts anymore because, you know, that's obsolete, that's over. And the, 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 the very fact that, that people communicate is the greatest form of advertising. So um, they've, they've worked on that. So they don't generally have, I, I don't really watch TV. I've seen perhaps a couple of Zappos uh, ads on TV, but their main focus is um, spending their marketing dollars on customer service, and it's totally paid off. I mean, Yeah. Yeah, you know, here's an interesting idea for you if you haven't heard it. I learned this from, from Bob passed this along with something learned from McLuhan. I don't know if McLuhan was talking specifically about more expensive items like expensive automobiles, but he said that the, the, the advertising dollars that went into those kinds of commercials for like Cadillacs, were not meant to uh, target new new customers. They were meant to give customers who already bought the car a pat on the back, reaffirm that they made a good decision, make them feel good about their purchase, and then they would talk to their friends about it and, and sell by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Yep. But in a way, though, that's in in a way though that's it's reinforcing the brand on 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 multiple levels. I I I, I absolutely true. see that. Yeah. It is. It's, it's, it's giving the guy who has the car a pat on the back, and then also having the the guy that wants it to to, to lust lust after it. But I mean, I've seen uh, maybe. Hey, Matt. Hey, uh, let me explain that. It, what he says, you hear on the first minute, 
is that people don't know what to think about the products they buy. They read the ads to tell them what to think and what to know about what they bought. Yeah. About what they buy or what they bought? What they bought. They buy something and they don't know what they think about it, what they feel about it, until they read the ad. So the ad is for someone who's already bought it. Hmm. It's describing, it's telling them how to feel about what they bought. That was the hilarious thing that McClune laid out. I've also seen ads that, that seem to me to be so uh, ridiculous in terms of their ability to connect to anyone <laughs> that I, I began to wonder if they weren't doing, if they weren't creating the ads to make the to make the employees feel good about working for the company. <laughs> yeah. Well, McLuhan said the basic principle of advertising was that advertising should not be noticed. It should be just reinforcing uh, what you already have, which is the same idea as telling you what you what you think about what you bought. The hard sell is, I'm going to make you buy this. I'm going to convince you. The soft sell is to become an environment and a supportive thing, like Zappos is a supportive thing. They talk to anybody about anything because communication is more important than information. Information is like a hard, a hard, a hard medium term. Hardware, yeah. hard and sell. And also, you know, there's a feeling sometimes, I don't know if this plays into the Zappo, uh, but... Uh, you know, Let's just say go, Zappa. We like Zappa, Zappa so it's called yeah. Zappa from now on. But if I go into a store and I, take two, and I spend a, a lot of time with a salesperson, a little part of me starts to feel obligated to, to treat that person by making a purchase because they've been so good to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's such a disconnected society the last hundred years for people. They don't know who their neighborhood is. And so the big thing is connecting people. But it got so complex with the four bodies that people aren't sure how to connect, so it's all mixed up what connecting is. So anything can be a form of connection, and Zappos has figured that out. And this Zappa uh, company is bringing back the, um, you know, front porch, if you will. Bring back what? Bringing back uh, uh, the front porch, sitting on the yeah. front porch, engaging with your neighbors, knowing one another, um, creating um, the... Uh, it's the Harlem. You, yeah, you drive through Harlem, all the blacks used to be sitting there on their stoops just talking, mingling, and, and uh, you, you, the kid be able to run into the other guy's house, you know, that wasn't so defined who the families were. Right. Yeah, so that's communist, that's tribal, that's aboriginal space, so Zappos is doing that. Is that a retrieval of... of uh, yeah, retrieval of human scale on the pre-technology level. <clears throat> For those of us who live in a disconnected... They, they, they have a successful business model in uh, being ahead of the curve, if you will. So maybe yeah, well, what they do is they don't define what they are. They don't. They know that you no no need to know anything. Just make yourself available to talk. It's like tailgate, or like this. You're just available, you know. And that's what they're doing. They're they're not defining what they are. You yeah, want and, then I, and then I heard an interesting. Uh, there you go. I can buy whatever. Got it. Yeah. But I want I heard, to have the experience of the connection of um, of the pat on the back that I've done well for myself or something. What were you Make, saying, Sasha? Making you feel better about your purpose. I was just saying, I, I was uh, driving to pick one of my kids up from school the other day, and I had CBC on, and it was the uh, that, that guy that, that talks about media, and he was talking about um, 
Knights, the, the CEO of uh, um, Nike, and uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of uh, his main ad guy. Anyways, it was a really interesting story, and um, the, the story went something like this, that, uh, that his ad guy's father was a, um, a very, very successful av advertising agency uh, of, uh, owner, and uh, uh, his, his son was a copywriter, and, you know, back in the days when, you know, advertising agencies were designated into these different sort of zones. And um, anyways, he absolutely hated advertising and so decided to, to screw off. And um, um, Knights actually overheard, uh, Phil Knights had overheard a conversation um, that he was having with, uh, w with, with this guy and said, you know, overheard him saying, you know, like, oh, no, sorry, he overheard uh, Phil Knights saying, uh, you know, I, I, I want to do a campaign, but I don't want it to be advertising. And this sparks this guy's imagination because they said, you know what, I'm in advertising, but I hate advertising. And that forged the, the most brilliant relationship um, the, behind one of the, the most well-known campaigns of our time. Um, and that guy wrote those words, just do it, which has become Nike's tagline, which is almost an anti-environment to advertising. Um, and they were discussing how, um, uh, you know, they had Michael Jordan on one particular campaign Given this very emotional speech about you know it's not about the it's not about the shoes it's about it's about you and <laughs> you, y o u t h or y o u it's about you y o u it's not yeah. so, so you had somebody coming in a major sports star going on national television for a major brand saying it's not about our shoes it's about you yeah and now Sasha you can go onto my timeline listen to my July fourth two thousand one talk where Ann Winley predicted 911, but in that, I said the main characteristic of the Android meme is to make reality seem all about you. That's why it's not a big brother um, fascist in the world we live in the last 20 years. It's all friendly, friendly seduction, friendly yeah. fascism, friendly communism, but the whole thing is to make you. So eventually, it's going to be so much about you, you'll be like Neo in a matrix tube thinking you're living in New York. Yeah, precisely. And that, 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 that was the foundation of you know um, that 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 sort of major turnaround, the the, the anti-environment to advertising, and Nike continued to do it over and over and yeah. over again. What year was that? Mid nineties? Gosh, yeah, probably. Mm, yeah, mid nineties. Well, it's not yeah, only right. it's not only interesting. They boiled the the whole uh, uh, communication down to two words, just or three words, just do it. <laughs> but they they, yeah. they 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 uh they they boiled the whole brand down to a check mark. <laughs> yeah. And they did the same thing as well with uh with Apple. I mean one of the, the you know, they discussed this as well and you know, it's an uh ad that I, I actually wasn't familiar with because I was living in the third world and we didn't have T V. But um uh when Apple launched the Macintosh they had this massive campaign that was launched, um Steve Jobs came uh to to his his agent and said, You know what, I want I want I want a world world-breaking, uh, groundbreaking ad. And, th I mean, that's enough to send anyone's shivers, you know, hair on the back of your neck, you name it. And so what they did is that they launched this ad for, for the, the, the Mac and said um, in the tagline, I believe it was something like, um, you know, you think it's 1984, but 1984 has now changed. Right, that's and the famous Super Bowl ad. I talk about that all the time, where the woman runs in the jogger and, and smashes the Big Brother screen, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
one of the one of the places where uh, I think Apple got leverage was that you know uh, Bill Gates was selling business machines to to uh, uh, businesses uh, corp- corporations who were you know doing business, but Apple was selling their machines to creative people. They were selling them to designers, uh, printers. They were selling them to the most creative people and designers uh, that, that worked in the industry. So they yeah, had Scott, all that cloud behind them. Yeah, in my terms, uh, uh, Microsoft was selling to the cloned ESP analog environment, and the uh, uh, jobs were selling to the volunteer ESP, where you create your own space, which was the long, the longer-range trend that was happening because the Android meme was going to make it more about you, and you don't even have to connect to the collective ESP. Yeah. Yeah, but it, of course it's a mi- it was a minority of, uh, of, of it was a mi- it was a, a, a smaller tribe because you know they still probably have only maybe seven percent of the market. But he has gone into these other products. Yeah, I don't know how I haven't been keeping up with with. with he's uh, talking about Steve Jobs. Yeah, I mean I'm he's been the, the king. Apple, the Apple computers. They they they. Well, he created all the i stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's all, it's all about I. It's about me. Like he put the, he, he, yeah, he put the little, little I in front of the object. So you thought it was about you. Yeah, it's funny. I saw, um, I think it was at um, South by Southwest Technology uh, uh, Conference. Um, one blogger had, a very sort of prominent media blogger had, um, was going around the conf- conference asking people what they what they thought was going to be the next new best thing, and they basically gave people stickers and it said that it, ba- that it, it crossed out any Apple product. <laughs> Is that lately? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. This year, I think it was in the last South by Southwest South by Southwest uh, technology right. conference. So I mean, he- because that's immediately what people say. You know, it's my iPhone or my iPad or whatever's the next i thing coming out because it'll be not i. It'll be not i. It, it might it be we. Yeah, no, but it, it couldn't be any Apple product. Basically, is what he was right. saying. That's because it's run its course as an environment, and it flips into its opposite characteristics, becomes a cliche and a and a disservice in the sense of the hassle. But this um, i thing. Okay, I want to give you a pattern. Um, the eye. Oh yeah. In in McLuhan wrote in the what the heck is that? Somebody mute please. Is that Brian? That sounds like Brian truck driver environmental interference, right? Uh oh, we got an invader. So can you hear me, Sasha? Yeah. Okay. Listen to that. Here comes everybody. <laughs> We've gone viral. <laughs> okay, so someone may be trying to bug us, but but the so Sash, I wanted to say that in in McLuhan's era, I think you were asking me the other day the difference between McLuhan and Croker or something. Yeah, McLuhan and Croker in the McLuhan yeah. era. People with big media environments, television, radio, bulldozers, just a huge thing. People felt alienated from technology. And it was revolutionary for McLuhan to tell them that technology was them. But when you get into the digital Android meme, it's all about you techno- world. The technology is not intimidating. It's tiny. It's, it's friendly. It's cuddly. 
therefore, you don't mind being called your technology. So Steve Jobs understood the update of McLuhan and said, yeah, McLuhan's right, and people aren't worried about technology. They want to be it, so he put the word I in front of his product. Well, to me, that had kind of a humanizing effect. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what, but we accepted the technology was not intimidating, so we, we felt it was on the human scale. That's what I'm here's saying. Here's the other side of the equation, Bob. I, I was surprised to learn that this phone called Android is actually has a bigger market share than, than the I, uh, iPhone and the iPod. Right, I heard that lately. So now I don't even know what it is. It's, 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 <laughs> it's an operating system. So essentially, what Android is is it's it's um, it's an open source operating system that that phones are run on. So Windows based phones, um, Samsung. So it basically is a cross brand operating system. What's better? So that that's Matthew Rose. Come on, Matthew. That's a stupid right, check. Bob, get it right. I'm in a bar, sorry. It is in a bar, for fuck's sake. Jesus Christ. Matthew's got to be listening to five conversations at one time. He's <laughs> <laughs> the real Neo. Yeah, yeah, he's, the, he's descended from Christ. He's the real Neo. He's Shakespeare. He's Warren Buffett's son. But the... Uh, so, yeah, this... The thing they're crossing out the eyes. See, that's a sign. McLuhan would love that story, Sasha. Uh-oh, we have a sensory shift here. The people are pissed at the eye. So what is it that's making him feel something else? That means there's the mystery landscape, maybe, that's making people want to be something else, and they're sick of the old friendly Android meme eye level. iPhone, eye, this eye, so. So, so that's, that's an example. That news that these people at the conference said, no Apple products, that means there's already something operating on them, and they're looking for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That they're, yeah, they're molded by something. They're going to come well, out with the Wii machine, which is all the rage these days. I mean, it's not a communication device, but it is an interactive gaming kind of thing. Called the Wii machine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I just think that the Wii... They don't want to go back to tribalism. They've had the isolation of being their own matrix tube. What would be the new thing? It, it, to me, it just sounds ionic, what they, uh, what they want. Ionic is the answer, <laughs> but what would that be as a product? Well, well, oh, RNA Drops is available now. The new website should be ready right today. Yeah, it launched. Well, the affiliate uh, partnering, just, it launched this afternoon. I gotta the, affi- the affiliates did? Yeah, yeah. Well, it launched because... talking about the website. Yeah, I'm talking about RNA Drops. The new website uh, is finally got completed early this morning, so it should be available. But that's an example, Sasha. Uh, I mean, J.W. still ponders about this as a businessman. He says, you know, with Matthew's crazy ad, I mean, people do research to get a product off the ground. Granted, we had the radio show going already, but... The way you would never market it the way it happened. You know what I mean? It was like ridiculous, mysterious, an ugly commercial that insulted people. <laughs> that's not the market. That's not what's driving the market. Ion's driving the market. That's yeah. right. The radio show. The radio yeah. shit did it. We were oh, in one Ion's medium. doing it. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The non-physical. You mean like everything, Japan, Egypt, everything's going on? Yes, the non-physical. No, no, no. I'm saying Ion, Ion makes a suggestion that's that seductive and people want to find out what it's about. Yeah, precisely. So if you remove, if the, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is one of the interesting factors of all of this, is if you remove that, um, that voice yeah. and, and try to enter a mass, marketplace with a neutral unbiased uh, voice which can has to be very careful <laughs> because yeah. of various reasons yeah um, then then you know that that for me is is um, an, an interesting uh, uh, yeah see <laughs> yeah no you have ion as a ion is a, a nano celebrity in a nano community of cash flow yeah, listeners precisely. And, and and somebody made an ad by accident, and the ad started a battle on dupes about how ugly it was and how could uh, uh, the lofty Bob and Carol be associated with this bullshit and all that <laughs> stuff. But that worked, or it didn't even matter because everybody heard it being talked about on the show, and they wanted some, right? Yeah, but the, so, the thing is, though, Bob, is that you have a um, – you ha- you, it's an anomalous situation, though, because you don't have – from a tra- traditional marketing standpoint, I mean, it would be like if um, – oh, my gosh. Okay, what's his name? Jerry uh, – big Christian, fundamentalist Christian. Jerry guy. Falwell. Yeah, it would be like if Jerry Falwell all of a sudden, you know, raised his voice and said, you know, this is, this is it. It would work? It would sell is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, it oh, Okay, so it's a cult phenomenon. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. pretty much. Because because yeah. essentially what you have is that you don't only have this nano environment, you also have this nano environment which which is has been is is, is being um uh is you know, it's being imbibed with, with this, this new language. And so yeah. there's, there's, along with this, this, this cult phenomenon, there's, 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 a, there's a new language phenomenon. New feeling. So the, it, the new language evokes yeah. new feelings. So, so thinking about the, it from taking that from a marketing perspective beyond that environment into the cold, you know, open the door yeah. and it's freezing and there's a blizzard, blizzard outside, that's, <laughs> that's a very, um, that's a very uh, seductive um, concept from a marketing perspective of how you, oh. could, how you could... You could uh, Play with that. You're, yeah, you're, saying, you're, you're, you're raising the question, how could you make the nano thing go, go viral into the mainstream? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, with, mm-hmm. with many, many limitations from, it, from it, many reasons. It parallels back to what you guys were just talking about uh, with open source um, software. Mm-hmm. Basically, this has got to be made open source so you can, uh, so you can sell it. You can now sell it to the world. With a very bland, um, with you got to release bland... the formula so we can all figure out how to make it for ourselves. That's the whole no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the no, open no, I don't care about that. Yeah. I don't. I, I personally don't care about that. I, I, I just think that it, it's interesting trying to take, take, you know, as we're saying this, this concept in, um, you know, how, you know, um, how, how, I mean, how you, can, how you can turn it around from okay, a think... standpoint. Hey, Sasha, I want to, let's stay on the line if you want to. I'll stop the recording because this should not be going into the McLuhan yeah, I was world. I was about to say that. <laughs> right, so I've got to press star nine, and it should stop, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Hey, James. Hey, Tina. How are you going? Good. Hey, James. 
Long time no speak. I know, I know. <laughs> Get this recording off. Have you been uh, listening?